0: On today's episode, we have a coach who busted my chops when I was coming into college, got me into uh, to boxing there for a minute. If you're in Athens, you know who this man is. If you're in Atlanta, you will soon know if you don't already. We want to welcome today to the podcast owner and hell of a man, Keith Kepner of Kepner Boxing. How are you doing today, Thank sir? Thank you, James. Thank you, James. Thank you, Swan. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So we like to start a little bit left of field. uh, And um, so what is the weirdest food
1: that you've ever eaten, Keith? Langua, definitely. I don't know what that is. That's tongue, right? That's right, Savon. The man with the tongue knows the tongue. Yes. Uh, I just think he's got this beautiful voice. But yeah, man, um, I ate Langua when I lived in Mexico one time. And it was prepared in an Asian style because it was done by someone who did uh, Mexican-Asian uh, fusion food. And it was very good. But <laughs> I've heard that if you don't correct for certain things or put a lot of flavor in it or whatever, you get the tonguey texture. It's not so hot. So I never felt the want or the need to do it again. What part of Mexico are you living in? The state of Michoacan, which is mid-Mexico. It's up about 7,000 feet altitude, about four hours northwest of Mexico City. And it looks like the Swiss Alps.
2: That's wild. If you'll mind me asking, were, were, you, were you there training? Were you there just, that's what yeah, I Yeah, and I did here. some
1: boxing down there. And uh, so my parents had a dream since 2004 to retire in Mexico. And uh, they finally were able to do it July uh, 2008 mm-hmm. and finally got a space, a place to move down. So I went down there with them, took the 2,000-mile uh, drive. And you know, I was boxing at the time, and my father was my coach. And so I went with them. And boxing is the second biggest sport in Mexico. So it was a great opportunity. And, um, yeah, for the two years that I was there, you know, it was a, it was a very beautiful experience uh, looking back on it.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> incredible, man. I didn't even know that that's how the that Michoacan was like the Alps. You know, I'm going to have to go visit there. I went to Oh, Tlubin. it's beautiful, man. Ooh. It's beautiful. Yeah.
1: Rolling hills uh, or like, actually, excuse me, there's some freaking mountains. And um, it's a lot greener than you think. A lot of evergreens. Uh, temperate temperatures. Uh, it's like California weather, uh, except without California prices and uh, <laughs> it's beautiful, man.
2: Thank you. to Put that on my list, man. Yeah, right. dude. Cool. So next question, what is the, the wildest, and you can take that in any context you want, it could be the most enjoyable, the most surprising, but the wildest concert you've ever been to. See, man, I haven't been to many concerts. So,
1: you know, it's just like with anything else. It's like, if I go to fights, it's cause I'm coaching somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I haven't been to a lot of fights either, uh, besides the ones I've coached. But the, the, well, the, the best concert I've ever been to was a Third Eye Blind concert. Um, mm-hmm. And only way I went there is because I got in there free and uh, did some work with somebody in that band. So that was really cool. Hung out with them afterwards and everything else, my wife and I. And it's cool for, you know, you guys are a little bit younger than me, but you know Third Eye Blind and
2: you well, might have Third some nostalgia
1: with that. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. they
2: were big. They were huge.
1: Yeah, man. So that was cool. Okay, It wasn't wild, but it's cool.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Good, 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 good. You know, sometimes wild can just be a, a really dope experience, and uh, and that's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah. dope. Okay, actually, so- man, I'd
1: say i say probably like in a punk in a punk uh, venue when I was probably like a teenager in Athens, right? That okay. would be wild. Yeah. So like, there's this house in the middle of kind of like down the hill from downtown and uh it was like a punk venue for a while and yeah so you could say that was probably the wildest right because i was 14 15 years old drinking and you know doing things i shouldn't have been doing and uh <laughs> you know it was
2: wild definitely. yeah hey, what's a punk venue if not wild? I mean, it's not a punk venue <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. So uh just so we can kind of catch people up to speed, can yeah. can you give us like a you know, a summary of of your journey in boxing, what got you in boxing, what kept you in it, what kept you not from jumping into jujitsu or some other form of, of martial arts and fighting, but but just your kind of story as it pertains yeah. to
1: boxing. So absolutely. So yeah, so growing up I had no interest in boxing at all. Really, I sparred like maybe twice when I was a little kid, uh, because my dad's a boxing coach. Uh and but then When I was about 17, you know, I was super sick. I had to drop out of high school uh, because I had Lyme disease and finally got a diagnosis, started treating it when I was 17. And at that time, I was 125 pounds, weak, uh, carpal tunnel in both my wrists and joint pain all the time, sleeping 18 hours a day. And just, you know, it was pretty pathetic. And I wanted to be the antithesis of that. To me, that is a boxer, you know, someone who's, you know, a badass or a fighter. And at that time, you're talking like mid-2000s or early 2000s, uh, Forrest Griffin from Athens, Georgia. who would go on to be UFC, uh, champion, light heavyweight champion. He, uh, he had trained with my father along with his coaches in, in boxing and whatnot. And so I saw that and saw that success. And I was like, wow. So I started watching MMA, UFC and whatnot. And my original goal was to just do boxing first and then move on and start training with Forrest's uh, coaches, Rory and Adam singer. That was the goal. Never happened. I fell in love with boxing and training with my father. And, uh, found that field of diamonds in my own backyard. And so, uh, but during that time, I was going through extensive antibiotic treatment for Lyme disease and uh, just, you know, loads of antibiotics. And uh, so it was up, down, up, down, up, down. I didn't get anywhere near the success that I wanted with it. And then it all culminated with July 4th, 2010 in Mexico. I got a neck injury, which made it uh, not a good idea for me to box anymore and get hit. I tried to get it fixed. Uh, It infringed upon my spinal cord and, you know, caused some loss of function for a period of time short period of time. And, uh, yeah. And then tried again and got the same symptoms. And so then stopped and started coaching in
2: 2011.
1: Hmm. I think I answered it all there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's crazy. That is crazy. Even the idea, you know, when you're going through something like that, I've never gone through some sort of, you know, physical condition, you know, that, that you have no control over. That's been that impactful on my life. But even to have the mindset of like, you know what, fuck this, I'm going right. to do my damnedest to, to, to try to pull back and, and claw back, you know, to what I had prior and to build even more on top of that. And I think that speaks volumes about the kind of man that you are, uh, because it would have been easy just to keep lying in that bed and, and feel sorry. And, and it's, it's an unfortunate situation to be in, no doubt. Uh, but I just really think that says a lot. Well, system. you're so
1: right because, you know, Savon, so like, there's this one individual. And, and to be clear, are you talking about neck injury? You're talking about Lyme disease. you talking
2: about, about the Lyme about? disease.
1: Yeah. So there's this one guy uh, that I've gotten to know and started talking with. He's about 23, 24 years old. Actually, no, excuse me, about 26. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he got hit by Lyme disease. He was in college. Uh, he was in uh, one of the top colleges in the country, super smart guy. You know, all of his friends around him, super driven. And he gets hit by this thing and it just knocks the hell out of him. Unfortunately, he was able to identify it pretty quickly. But still, it's a long treatment, it's a similar organism to syphilis, by the way, guys. So, mm. all the stuff that you hear that syphilis can do to someone make you go insane uh, it's a spirochete, it drills in the cell walls and does all the same wonderful stuff, except it's not an STD, you get it from a tick. And so, anyway, talking to this young guy, I you know, have the fortune of talking to him about it once a month, and he had to get out of some of the support groups, some of the groups of people that get together for Lyme and whatnot, because. You get caught in this cycle of this trap of like you said, kind of feeling sorry for yourself. And even though I think deep down in someone's soul or heart they don't want to do that, it's just if you fall into that pattern, then everyone around you wants to wants to feel sorry for you and wants to help. And um, and you have to almost remove yourself from those people. You know, I remember when I started or boxing in 2013. You know, I was still having some troubles, and my mom, out of love, was telling me, "Don't work so hard." you know, don't, don't try so much. You know, that's what she was saying without meaning to say it. And, uh, I had, I had to really separate myself in that situation or else it was going to smother me with the best of intentions.
3: Mm. Or you
4: just said a mouthful. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Do you, do you find, um,
0: I mean, you're talking about these support groups and people kind of reinforcing an identity. Do you, do you yes. see that to be something that, that maybe we could also extrapolate over to Narcotics Anonymous and
1: Alcoholics Anonymous? I would say so. I would say so. I mean, and in agreeing with you, though, you know, I may be, um, you know, disturbing a lot of people that I know personally who have a, a ton of success with it. But I think that possibly they would agree with it as well, is that the benefit with those groups is obviously the community of support. But what's important though is that it doesn't become a community of empathy or uh, just everyone feeling sorry for each other and things like that. And I think it'd be really it can be really negative. Um, And to give you an example, like during the pandemic, you know, I went into this one group uh, for Lyme, and you know, just to you know be a part of it. And I only went one time, you know, on Zoom because you know it's it's, it was a nice thing to meet everybody, but I could kind of see. What the cycle was and yeah so i would say with with almost all those groups um you well you know what it is too is it's like man so i have an addictive personality right so like i went to uh uh alcoholics anonymous or whatever uh when i was a teenager and like y- you know I- i've learned to embrace the uh the benefits of being an addictive type person of <laughs> being someone who is extreme. That's why I got into boxing. Anyone that gets into a combat sport is extreme or crazy in some way, um, whether it's good, crazy or bad, crazy. And so to take those, so I, I found a lot of inspiration from other individuals who, you know, are extreme addict type people um, and how they use those as gifts. And so I think sometimes with those programs, specifically James, that like you're talking about, sometimes they try to kill the gift instead of transform the gift into
4: something that's more useful. Mm. Yeah. And, and
0: I only, I only asked that because I, I think that, I mean, we've talked on this podcast extensively and I also think Keith that you, you mirror this in your content as well, that the story that you tell yourself is, is your reality. Yeah. I think that there's, uh, I mean, I'm curious how, how you've continued your journey with, uh, with Lyme and I, I don't know the damnedest thing about Lyme disease. So yeah. um, could you also educate us a little bit on after you, After you receive treatment, is that something that then comes back up? Is it recurring? Is it autoimmune? Like, can you give us some info there? Like,
1: how do you stay focused there? You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's a lot of uh, theories and conjecture. And and to be clear, when I uh, got a positive blood exam uh, result for Lyme disease in the early 2000s, it wasn't recognized to be in Georgia. So here I am having a positive blood result that says I have Lyme disease. But doctors, some doctors in Athens, Georgia, would tell me I don't have Lyme disease right? Um, Because the CDC didn't recognize it at that time. They just hadn't caught up to it yet, but it took them to like, I think 2008 or so to finally catch up. Anyway, so there's a lot of debate. uh, For this, my uh, treating physician who specializes with Lyme disease, who initially did a lot of the groundwork stuff with HIV, uh, Dr. Jomsek, he had to move states three times because of the, uh, newness of this illness in the South and how it just wasn't accepted different ways to treat it. So simply the fact that he used long-term antibiotics to treat an illness, he had to move from South Carolina to North Carolina and finally find a home in DC where his practice is. And he was touted and, uh, uh, you know, rewarded for his work with HIV, but then he jumps into Lyme as a different story. Now it's finally starting to shift finally, but, uh, anyway, kind of offshoot there. Uh, it's, it's something that, there's a debate if it's turned into autoimmune or if there is such thing as chronic Lyme, no one really knows for sure. Um, it can definitely lie dormant for a long period of time, I believe up to two years. And that's the scary thing about it. So keep that in mind for y'all. If you guys, you're in Georgia, you bit by a tick uh, and you don't have any symptoms or a bullseye rash. I didn't, uh, man, two months later, a year later, you could get flu-like symptoms and be like, oh, I just got the flu. And yeah, it's actually Lyme disease. So it can take, it can be dormant for up to two years. And that's what makes treating it difficult too. So for instance, with jump Sick, with his uh, protocol, uh, which he was one of the main doctors to do it, I think first is pulsing. So you go on for a few weeks, go off for a few weeks and you cycle on, cycle off. Cause if you just hit it hard with antibiotics nonstop, it will hide out. It also builds up cysts and cell walls or cysts to protect itself and drills into cell walls. So that also makes it hard to kill as well. Wow. But how do oh, I wh- deal with that? How do I deal with that? Is throughout my journey, um, sorry, I had to kind of get myself on track, uh, is, you know, my mom will tell you she had to be my advocate for better, for worse, because I would lie a lot of times to tell myself a story. And so I would go see Jumsek. We'd go up to South Carolina or when he was up in DC, go up in DC. And, uh, how's it going, Keith? Oh, I'm doing great. (laughs) You know, my mom's like, no, you're not doing great. (laughs) Yeah. But really holding on to that identity I think is what allowed me to crawl out of that situation. Um, and, uh, you know, it could have also been my downfall, you know, by not giving my doctor enough feedback, perhaps, but it was least important, I think, during those formative years. And, uh, and it's something that, you know, man, when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, uh, I wish I could work a job, you know, I, I really wouldn't, I would train some boxing and, Recover and do a lot of treatment and stuff like that. And so, I, you know, I wish that I, you know, could fit into society like everyone else was of my peer group. Um, but all that gave me a drive and a hunger to the point where I truthfully say, like, I am so, so grateful for having Lyme disease and so grateful for the years that it, it took from me because it allowed me to put so much more into the years that I had following. And that's what's allowed me to sprint ahead of people who got a head start on me. You know, there's people that started a business, uh, f- 10 years before I did. And I'm, I'm passing them. So, uh, you know, in terms of business or in terms of health.
2: Hmm. There mm, it talk is. Talk that shit,
4: Keith. <laughs>
2: talk it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But it's like, that's to your point though. And, and what James mentioned about you emphasizing that the narrative that we craft for ourselves is cause it's like a choose your own adventure. Right. and, but That's when you right. choose your own adventure, one of those books, you can choose your own adventure, but you're still locked into what is written on those pages. Mm. And so, depending on how it is that you continue to write a story, that really affects what could be a possibility. And um, and obviously, it's a fine line, like you said. You know, if your doctor's like, "How you doing?" You know, and sometimes you you know you got to be strong. Sometimes you know, if you couldn't walk for two weeks, might be like, "Yeah, man, it was a tough couple weeks." You know, but I'll yeah. Go. And and I just kudos to you. But that's where it's like if you're
1: going to be on that on that balancing act, right? Wouldn't you all rather be on that side, right? Yeah, that side of you know, kind of not whining and complaining, of not uh, over dramatizing what you're going through. That's the side you want to be on, right? It's much easier, I think, um, to slowly move yourself towards the middle versus take someone who is uh, a complete, you know, Mm -hmm. victim and try to get them empowered, right? You know, they have to really want to get empowered in order for that to happen.
2: Yeah, so. no, that, that, that's a perfect example because growing up, my mother, she, she dealt with a lot of different conditions. And I didn't really notice this particular thing that she did until sometime late high school, I think. But whenever mm-hmm. I would get on the phone, I would, you know, like most people do, how are you doing, right? I would ask her that. And she would always just ask me, how are you doing? And she <laughs> wouldn't even answer the question. And I started to recognize that on the days where she answered me, she's feeling pretty good. If she uh, doesn't answer, then I know that maybe she's going through it a little bit, but she's not going to sit there and be like, oh, oh, my back hurts, and oh, oh, my head hurts. And she's just going, boom, we're going to go straight through it. You know, like, yeah. oh, how are you? And yeah. I just had to learn to respect, because it used to frustrate me. But mm-hmm. then I had to learn to respect that this is a part of how she was able to deal with it all and not be a chronic victim, was you just kind of have to put certain m- mental trickery in place, you know, to kind of trick yourself into the state that you want to be in. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. I mean, you get what you focus on and, you know, the, it's not like you can wish it away or will it away necessarily, but, you know, if you focus on a little bit less or, you know, occupy yourself with something else, it can, it can shift that. So yeah, great point. How has your journey with Lyme disease impacted the way that you coach? Impacted
4: the um, way that I you would say that fighters? it gives,
1: yeah, it gives me more understanding for any struggle they've been through. Cause one thing too, like I was talking to someone else about like a couple weeks ago or so is when you're a leader, which is what you are as a coach, when you're a leader, uh, people have to know that, you know, you, you're, you're real, you've been through something, you, you, you've dealt with something and you've overcome something yourself. Uh, so outside of the fact of, you know, me having some experience in boxing and knowledge, um, you know, the fact of who I am and, and, and how I've pulled myself back from being, having a chronic illness where, you know, I don't talk about this often, but we were actually, you know, filing for disability for me there for a short time. Uh, so going through that lets people know that, well, you know, if Keith can overcome that, I can, you know, succeed as a boxer in, in this situation that I have. And also when he tells me something, you know, it's something that it's not just he's telling it to me. It's something that maybe he's had to do in his life. And that's very important because you can say all the right things and, you know, do all the right little leadership hacks. But at the end of the day, you're just going to be a hack unless you actually have done it or something similar.
2: Makes a ton of sense. And when you mentioned earlier that people who usually engage in combat activities, combat sports, they're a little bit of crazy. Yeah. With the people you've worked with, right, and I, and I imagine you don't maybe necessarily have to, and maybe this is wrong, but I imagine at this point you don't get to directly coach every single person who comes True. in with Kepner Boxing. Oh, no, absolutely. But yeah. if you had to just kind of throw a rough estimate out there, what would you say is the split between people who are good crazy and people who are working <laughs> to become good crazy?
3: Mm. That's hard. That's
4: hard.
1: I would say the majority of people 75% are good crazy that come into it. It's only about 25% or less. Uh, and we also the way that our brand is and everything else, and we we really weed those people out really quickly. Um, mm. And if not, it's kind of one of those like sink or swim in a positive sense, meaning it's like you either get that right, or you're not going to be right here. <laughs> so uh, like one, one guy I have in my mind, um, I won't say his name, but he, you know he would come in frustrated all the time he would get so frustrated and everything else and uh you know just have all of those kind of toxic activities without being malicious uh without being narcissistic just all those kind of toxic self toxic self-talk and had poisonous people around him and everything else and it's amazing to see how he is now you know it's totally different. he walks different he talks different uh, it's all different And it's because of the community that he put himself in that he knew he needed to be in. And I almost removed him from the community, not because of anything he did, but because of uh, some of those talks of people around him actually reaching out to me and mm. trying to cause some drama. And I had to, you know, uh, basically talk to him and say, hey, I had this person come to me, say that there's this situation that happened, you know, not in the facility or anything, but just, you know, out in personal life. Uh, you know, what's the story on that? And, uh, you know, he shared it with me and it seemed to make sense. And, you know, I gave him a chance. And, uh, he proved, he proved that that was a false story, mm. Mm. but, but, but this is the problem though, with combat sports is that it, it brings people who want the majority of people who want self-improvement, who want to challenge themselves, who want to be a warrior for all the good things. And then it brings people that want to exploit people and people that, uh, are narcissistic and, uh, egotistical that that want to be the biggest and strongest and baddest gorilla. And, uh, it's uh yeah so it and, and unfortunately you know those people do a ton of damage.
2: So what sort of things do you have in place uh, that you can share that helps you navigate that and just maintain that up and up feeling? Because to your point, especially people who've never gone in to yeah. do a combat sport, it, it I imagine it can be you know you don't want to scare these people out of the gym with one or two bad actors uh, oh, exactly. who are just trying to be the big gorilla. So how do you maintain that that vibe? Yeah, no,
1: exactly. So, you know, it starts off first when someone walks through that door and, you know, smiling at them, saying hello, because, uh, you know, my wife had to call me out on this, uh, back when I started coaching because, you know, I came from this kind of hole in the wall boxing gym style <laughs> and yeah. And where, you know, somebody might try to try to challenge you, you know, if you're a coach or whatever and, uh, on any given day. And so people would, a male, like she said, a male would walk through the door and I would be mugging them, right. Be mugging them. And uh, but then you know, so she she called me out on that. And then I also realized as well, it's like, hey, you know, it's like if we're gonna be confident and everything else, you don't do that crap, right? If you're really confident, you're gonna be friendly to people, you're gonna be nice, gonna be loving. And so we meet everyone with love when they come through the door. So automatically you see people come through the door all kind of, you know, mm, and then they're like, Oh, <laughs> you're nice. Okay, I guess I can relax. And so breaking that ice immediately, and then as well, when we spar in the facility. It's always our coaches preach, you know, take care of each other, take care of each other. You know, you're not going to get better if you don't have a training partner. And that was a lot of times my problems when I box, I wouldn't have a lot of training partners because either I had people that I got better than, and I would literally be knocking out, like literally be knocking out and sparring, or like you see the reels of Mike Tyson. You know, I wasn't as good as that, but I'd be knocking out lesser people like that. And, uh, or it, it would be only people that could beat the hell out of me. And so it's like, there's no kind of like middle ground. Uh, for me to actually get better and get enough time in the ring, honestly, it isn't just always a fight. Cause I mean, dude, it's like if every time is like you you get in there, it's like your final exam, you know, you're not really able to learn and improve.
2: Mm. That makes a lot of sense. What do you think makes so I hope a great answer
4: your question?
0: <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. What do you think makes a great boxer? And
4: what do you think makes a shitty boxer?
3: Oh, outside, outside of so skills,
4: outside of skills, both, both. Okay. Um, well,
1: well. So, what makes a great boxer is someone who is self-absorbed. Um, if you're not self-absorbed, you're not going to be great at anything because you're going to be too focused on other people. Uh, and then, secondly, is the ability—yeah—the ability for someone to adjust, right? So, to be steadfast in what their outcomes are, you know, as you might have heard people say, and flexible in your approach, right? Uh, so that's something that. You know, I learned from my father with his journey as a coach um, and I've learned from coaching fighters and I learned from my own experience with boxing is when you're rigid and how you approach it and you have to succeed like this one specific path and way you're not going to be successful. You know, I mean, you know, 20 times out of 21 times. So that to me, that's what it is. And someone who's a crappy boxer is someone that um, is maybe someone that doesn't listen. Again, so they can't be flexible in their approach. Uh, and also perhaps maybe, maybe they think they know everything and they don't realize that, hey, it's always, you're always learning something. And you can always learn something from everybody, even people worse than you.
2: Hmm. What's been one of the most enlightening things you've learned
4: from somebody you were coaching? Hmm. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, I'd say one of the biggest things that stands out to me uh are is just some people's work ethic and
1: uh you know their 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 will to win. Uh because you know I've had the fortune of coaching a couple of boxers that now have undefeated professional careers at this point and seeing, you know, how they approach situations, how they approach challenges, and to also see them falter, to see that somebody to be that close to somebody who is a winner and see where they do have their weaknesses and where they do doubt themselves and where they do get frustrated and it kind of breaks down a little bit and to realize that no matter how great somebody is, they always are going to have those moments, but to see what the cumulative effect is of them uh, you know, showing up more times than they don't and, and you know, nine times out of 10. And so it's just, uh, it's been great to see people's work ethic. People working night shift jobs and coming in and training before going to sleep and sleeping four hours a day, that type of thing, while competing in a high level sport, you know, so that's just, that's really been the biggest uh, lesson for me is just, you know, with what I do, um, you know, how can I work harder? How can I be better?
4: How many people, or what would you say the percentage
0: of boxers that, that make it, that are on that hero's journey like we've seen in the Rocky movies, like we've seen in these, uh, in these fighting movies, these MMA movies, where they are doing just that? They're working one or two jobs. They've got multiple kids. They've got a family. They're young. And they're literally putting it all on the line.
4: What was your question?
0: What, what percentage of, of people do you think in the boxing world or combat sports in general are on that journey that make it to the highest of heights versus the individuals that you know, are eaten out of a silver spoon that have mommy and daddy's money to pay down for 14 one-on-ones with Keith Kevner.
1: Yeah. You know? Well, I would say, man, so, so it's like, it's just, it's two different universes, right? So um, it's a different set of skills. You know, there's a reason why Logan Paul is known. And there's a reason why when he fights, he gets paid big money. There's a reason why, you know, uh, some other guy doesn't. Right. Uh, and so it's a whole nother set of skills. It's an entertainment sport. And there's so many things that go into the business side of it with a successful athlete, specifically in boxing that I know of, uh, that that alone is largely the biggest determiner. All right. So even something like, I don't know if you guys saw the amazing fight that happened over last weekend with Lopez and Camposas. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Okay. So you guys got to watch that. It's fight of the year. Insane. I won't tell you how we win or what happened, but my God. Um, (laughs) But even with that story, uh, both those individuals, the individual that was the underdog who pulled out a tremendous victory, uh, phenomenal. And he was like 10 to 1 underdog. It was insane. Mm. Um, You know, it's still the same thing. It's not like he's just some dude who's training in some gym. You know, he had to get connected with the right people. Uh, he had to get connected with the right promoter. You know, his promoter is Lou DeBella in New York. And, you know, Lou does a lot of good work and he's a big time guy. And so you got to get connected with these people. And it's like with anything. And that's what I think the fallacy that people fall into. You guys familiar with the E-Myth? Yes. Mm. Okay. So, you know, you have the engineer type, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So like, that's what my father was. And, uh, and that's what I thought I had to be as well. It's like, okay, if you just become so damn excellent at something, people won't help but notice and you will succeed. And that's not the case. That's not the case, right? And we all know that, right? Because there's people that are worse than us that are more successful than us, right? And uh, so same thing with boxers, man. There are boxers out there that are better than the boxers you see on national television or MMA or whatever. There are some that are better or as good and they you don't know who the hell they are and no one knows who they are. Uh, and so you must master marketing uh, and networking and be at the right you know, proximity, right place, right time. All that, all those things, uh, because I've seen so many fighters that were good fighters, but just not marketable, Well, they didn't have a marketable style. The same thing goes, I know for MMA, but definitely I know for boxing, is that you know if you're got a boring as hell style, like I mean, I'm sorry, it's gonna be really hard to move you. You know, if you're an amateur coming up there winning national titles, I've seen it, national titles, uh, and you're a top boxer, best in the country, no one wants to sign you if you're not exciting. Uh, so you're still winning, you're still winning but you're not exciting. And so to me, that's uh, one of the drawbacks of boxing. And that's why I like other endeavors more, like business, because if you succeed by the metric, you know, there's one metric, <laughs> which is, you know, the profit and loss and grow of, growth of a business. And, you know, everyone can know what the name of your business is or not, but if you're succeeding at that one metric, you know, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, you still have to market and everything else, most of 99% of the time, but still, it's like, there's not all of this... Uh, those different politics and things like that going on
0: yeah because if that net margin continues to grow you are on the path
1: (laughs) that's right and that's it man that's it um and so and and that's what the beauty of of also i think having like a relatively free market is that you you can go out there whereas like with boxing with sports it's not it's not free typically i mean like at least with boxing i know maybe with other sports like you climb up the, the ranks but in boxing climbing up the ranks is just a lot of politics you know most of the time well, I would <clears throat> I would say I mean what WBA and WBC and
0: even looking at UFC versus ONE FC versus Bellator it's all it's all politics Ryan mm-hmm. Bader is a hell of a mixed martial artist hell of a mixed martial artist he will never be in the UFC mm-hmm. he's a Bellator mm-hmm. champ he will never they will never sign him because and why is that why is he's that he's too good and he's Bellator's golden boy They Mm. will never reward Bellator's golden boy Mm. because they are the UFC. Mm. It's very interesting to even see someone like Michael Chandler come over. Um, and, and I'm, I have no idea what the politics look like in boxing other than I don't understand all of the different individual belts all over the place and unifications. And I liked watching the, the wilder and, um, and, and fury that, that third one, that was, that was solid. Um, And I kind of want to pull on something. I want to roll back just a little bit. You mentioned Logan Paul. What do you think about both the Paul brothers
1: and what they're doing for boxing right now? Well, I think anytime you have attention on something, it's great. So it's always a net benefit uh, because if people aren't thinking about boxing or watching boxing, no matter how it's represented, uh, then it's not on their mind. So as someone that loves boxing and has a business that's all built around boxing, uh, it's, it's great. It's great. And, uh, and also like with the younger one, you know, he takes the sport seriously and you know, that's awesome. And because I know the game, you know, not that like, I'm the best player of the game, meaning like the business side or the fighting side, but because I know the game, uh, I got a lot of respect for the younger brother because, you know, he's, he's doing it the smart way. And like, for instance, like, you know, you remember James, when I, when I was training, you like Ronda Rousey, right. Ronda Rousey, you know, hell of an athlete. She's an Olympian. She's a great competitor, but she was, was she really the best MMA fighter in the world that her weight class female? No, she wasn't. Nah, she was and, just and stealing, we, stealing elbows and stealing labrums. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> and we saw that and we saw that and, you know, she was matched, you know, well, and not that she didn't ever have to rise to the occasion. She did a couple of times, but you know, just and 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 again, like Olympic uh, judo, like she would, yeah, like she could beat probably anyone in the world, and I guess she had to do that basically. But with the MMA, which is a different animal, um, you know, she she was not the best in the world. She was top, definitely like top five, whatever. But you know, and so that's with like same thing with all this stuff. It's like it's an illusion, man. You know, it's an illusion that oh man, this person's best in the world. Are they really the best in the world? Eh, not really, <laughs> not really. And same thing goes with the Olympics, by the way. So to be clear. I don't want to give props to the Olympics in the wrong way, too, because, you know, very few organizations have had so much corruption and also been nailed with so much corruption <laughs> uh, with boxing, with everything else uh, than the Olympics. You know, it, it's 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 the same thing. We definitely have our thoughts on the
0: Olympics. It's not quite the gold standard anymore.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> oh. No, it's definitely oh. not. Uh, and then similar to James, rolling the back just a little bit. When you mentioned the aspect of being able to. Business having those hard metrics that you can track and are can't be disputed, right?
4: Yeah.
2: I'm curious what the path to franchising looked like. Why yeah. you made that choice, and and how you know that that evolution in your business and your personal life, just what that has been like for you, because you yeah, haven't well, all things considered, you haven't been in business that long. Oh no, of course. For someone to yeah. go franchise, so that's 2013. Pretty... Man, is when we started. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so,
1: and, and also, man, as well as Savannah, it's like, like right now I could literally work very few hours a week and have, you know, over six figure income. Okay. So barely work. Cause I don't coach right now. You know, I work with the fires a little bit here and there, but I don't coach. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, the, the, the path to the franchising is that We hit this point with the business. When we had our daughter four and a half years ago, my wife started stepping out of the business and systematizing her end. Then I started systematizing my end to step out of the business. So I don't have these golden handcuffs anymore because, you know, my father was a clinical psychologist as well. He's a PhD in neuroscience and he had a practice that was nationally renowned for treating anorexia. People would fly into Athens into that little airport to see him across the country. And, uh, but it was golden handcuffs. He would leave for a vacation for two weeks and the business would be cut in half. All right. And then he had to retire in 1994 because there's just too much. Right. He's on call all the time for clients that are suicidal and things like that. And uh, and then that's when he got into boxing full time. Anyway, so I grew up with that mindset of like, OK, that's owning a business. It's golden handcuffs and, you know, uh, owning a job. And uh, but then I, as I, we start growing grow the business, start to discover, OK, it can be different. And I met this guy uh, in uh, San Francisco who's a Facebook marketing guy at the time for gyms. And uh, he started changing my mindset on that. And he honestly like painted the picture for me of what my life would be like five years from then. And it's the truth. And uh, so we started stepping out, building the systems. And uh, then about 2019, you know, we were largely out of the business and it was running by itself and continuing to grow. And that's how we knew we had something that was replicatable. And so then we started looking at either expansion with corporate locations or with franchising. Um, I, at that time I, you know, had been, helping some other business owners in the fitness industry help, you know, and maximize their business. And I have a passion for that. My passion for business and coaching. And so I was like, how can I put all this stuff together? Because whenever I get sidetracked, you're know, like, Savon, those fights that you announced, that you did a great job at, right? Like when, man, you were, that was the first one, right. That you mm-hmm. announced, right. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, man, let me tell you when that happened, I got sidetracked by that crap for a little bit. I'm like, Oh man, promotions. Cause like, you know, we made a pretty good uh, margin on that. I like, oh, man, I need to go do that. That's how I'm going to grow. And uh, I got sidetracked and hurt the business a little bit. So I realized, how do I wrap everything that is Kepner Boxing, the one thing in my life business-wise that succeeded, into something that is also successful? And that's where franchising makes sense. And it, it brings all my passions together and everything else. And so basically, we hooked up with uh, Franchise Marketing Systems, which is a group in Alpharetta. And uh, for a very nominal fee, uh, they built out our FDDs, helped us build out our training manuals and everything else. and. And uh, off to the races, uh, August 2020. So we started that process mm. January or February of 2020. Pandemic hit. We stayed the course. Used the pandemic as an opportunity to cut off the fat and the things that weren't the best things with the business. And uh, yeah, and boom.
2: Mm. Man. So how long would you say it took for you to, or at what point in the business? That decision of, okay, I think I want to get rid of these golden handcuffs. How long ago was, you said it was when your daughter was born, roughly? That you started thinking more yeah, about that? A little bit after
1: that. A little bit after that. Because also, too, man, it's like one of those things, like, your ego gets in the way, right? Because mm. everyone's telling you, like, when James trained with me, like, everyone's telling you, oh, man, dude, this place is so great. And it's so great because of you, you know?
3: Uh, <laughs>
1: and it's like, oh, you know, you're such a great coach. And, I mean, dude, for a while there, been I got It's depressed. true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, you, You were you a hell of me. a coach. You were the reason that I came no one Thank else. Thank you, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. And and so and, it, and it's, it's it's the truth, like you're saying. And so I honestly got depressed when I stepped out all the way, like when I stepped out all the way out of teaching and coaching sessions, especially the big group sessions. I love that, you know, all the energy with that. Um, I got depressed, man. I had to you know find other things uh, to enjoy and you know things like that. But anyway, um, but so stepping my ego aside because it's like looking at your business like it's a child, and just like with a child when they go to High school, you don't need to be up their butt all the time anymore. Right. And like when they go off to college, don't be the parent that's like calling them every darn night, you know, while they're trying to do what they're doing. You know, as long as they're doing right, man, you don't need to be doing that. And so that's the same thing with the business. And so letting the business go from being a, an infant to a child to a teenager to a young adult. And uh, so, yeah, that's what, that's what that was. And then also, just I don't want to be at the end of my life. And say, like, man, I wish I could have, you know, maybe franchise, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that. I see so many people that are like that. So many people, you know, they, they, they think they want something, or maybe deep down in their soul, they want something, but they don't do the scary stuff to actually do it and take the risk of failing. And uh, and that's one thing that's beautiful, like with the lessons of boxing and combat sports that you know, my dad told me he learned from it, many things. And one thing that I learned from it as well, it's like, you know, how does this compare to getting the hell beat out of you or getting knocked out in front of people? you know, it's, that's humiliating as hell as well. If anything, that's worse than failing at business or failing at some of these things. So why not take the chance?
4: It's a thought. (laughs) Do
0: you
1: use your time? Beautiful is a perspective. What do you say, James?
0: Yeah. Do you use your time uh, in the ring and that negative visualization of getting knocked out? Do you, do you start with that when you embark on a new journey? Because there's really nothing that could be worse than that in your own mind. I
1: have. I have not much anymore. So that was a, a tool that I learned from my father that I'd utilized there for a little while. Um, now it's simply the idea of if I don't wake up or have moments in my day where I'm scared and worried and concerned about am I am I able to do this? I, I'm not I'm not living anywhere near my potential. And uh, a beautiful musing that I'm sure you guys have probably heard before. It's not my thought, is you know the idea that when you die, because it's like, dude, who knows what and who cares? But just this utility <laughs> thought of right, 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 because who cares, right? But when you die, let's just pretend this happens. You meet yourself, who's your actual, your actualized ideal, everything you could be, right? Health wise, you know, uh, family wise, business wise, psychology wise, everything. Um, you want that person to be a lot like you, man. You want that person to be, man, you know, Keith, Keith, you're just like me instead of being like, dude, you're a total stranger, you know? And so having that thought in my mind is something that helps inspire me. And has inspired me for quite a few years now Um, because I saw my father do his, do his best to adopt Buddhism uh, and everything else near the end of his life, because he didn't do everything he wanted to do. And, you know, and this is a very accomplished guy. Uh, but he, he tried to similar to the addiction point, uh, mm. you know, with narcotics synonymous and things like that. It's like, he tried to, to tame his, his dark side that, you know, he just should have let it channel and in, instead it ended up him being bitter, uh, in his last couple of years. He was very, very bitter. Uh, well actually for the last decade of his life, he was pretty bitter, but then it got worse. And so I saw that and I realized that. I don't want that to be me. They're like, oh, I'm going to have success with this business and I'm going to do it by coaching everything and everything else or whatever and doing it this one rigid way. And then I don't get what I actually wanted from it. And then I'm going to be bitter about it. You know, I, I need to continue growing and continue pushing myself and continue doing things that aren't comfortable. Because no matter how tough we are, we all have these things that we repeatedly refuse to do. And I do too. But call yourself out, you know, eventually, or hopefully someone calls you out for you and you you start to grow those things and change those things. So.
2: Hmm. The point you make about your father and kind of trying to lessen the blow of the realization that like, damn, I left something on the table. (sighs) I think that's such a useful example in conjunction with the point you made about if you met your idealized version. I've never heard that. You know, I've heard what well, ultimately is trying to get you to the same place, but that actual practice, art, right, you die. Now you meet the perfect you. What's the delta between you and it? That's right. Uh, man, when when did you first when did you first kind of was it recognizing your dad's bitterness, kind of one of the first steps, or did you have this internal change of frame reference And then were you able to kind of notice that your dad had become bitter, which one of those kind of, kind of took place first in that dichotomy? Yeah,
1: that's a hard question. Um, You know, I would say I had my own bitterness and I knew that well when I was sick all the time, right? So I knew exactly what that looked like because I was nothing near my ideal, you know, like, you know, right now, you know, I, I, I run and do all this other stuff. And then like, I couldn't run a mile. And I couldn't, you know, barely lift anything because my wrists were all, you know, messed up and everything carpal tunnel from Lyme. And so I, I got the feeling of what bitterness felt like of of not actualizing or not being able to actualize. And so so seeing that and then but in, with perspective. So so I would say that I saw that he just, um, you know, uh, he and he he disowned me. Uh, he and I parted ways and. uh and I saw him just fall down this complete path of bitterness and and hatred for everyone. And you know he he taught me how to hate in a good way, like how to hate the things that you do need to hate, um but then it just it took control of them, and he didn't channel that drive and that edge because uh, and this goes back to the leader thing of that, you know, I don't know about y'all, but if I'm gonna follow someone, I need them to have some type of edge that they control, right? Some type of dark side that they control because if you're just purely uh, the nicest person ever. And this, this, this lamb, you know, who wants to follow a lamb, you know, except to be slaughtered, right? You want to follow someone who is capable of extreme and of evil, but chooses not to be right. That's someone you want to follow. Just like a fighter too, right? A fighter can do horrible things to somebody else, but they choose not to. And, uh, so I saw it kind of engulf him because he didn't channel it into, um, the right path. And so, you know, to, to give detail to his situation, he wanted a world champion that he produced. Um, but the problem was, is that he was steadfast on doing it one certain way, similar to the way that James talked about, about being this, this hardworking guy that just, you know, scrapes up and Rocky story and, you know, goes against all the odds to, to beat somebody to, to get a shot. And then they get the shot and they make it. And I saw him lie to himself a lot. And and this is part of why he and I got into it, and you know we had to part ways. Um, and is that you know he would list this fighter, that fighter, this fighter, that fighter, and say, "Oh look, yo, know, they did it, they did it." I'm like, "No, actually, look deeper. Look at who they fought here. You know, here they had a bum. They fought here. Da, da, da. You know, he refused to um, to invest the money into fighters to get them to where. They need to be and to take the path that is the actual path that you could succeed with a fighter to get to them to get them to that level. You know, so it's like someone that says, I want to succeed at business, but they're not going to spend money on marketing. You know, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I just, uh, you know, I just need to do a better service. and so My business will grow. It's like, no, you need to F and market, but they won't spend the money on it. And so the same similar situation with him. It's not not being not being open to those and being too rigid. And uh, but then that that drive and that edge and that dark side took him over. Yeah, took him over and it was really a sad thing to see. And, and, you know, after he he died in 2019 and, uh, so, you know, I miss him a lot and he taught me everything, what not to do, what not what to do and what not to do. But, um, but, but yeah, it helps with perspective on that, you know, seeing that and and drive me because I needed a reason to drive me because one of the reasons that drove me was to, to show my father that, um, you know, I'm capable. Because, you know, it's one thing is no matter how much he hated me in his later years, he's always said that Keith will succeed at something because he's driven. And he, he saw me pour myself into things. And so, you know, I want to prove him right and also, you know, prove him wrong in that he thought the path I was taking was not the right
3: path. Hmm.
4: Both of us having lost our fathers, do you have any regrets?
1: Mm, Yeah, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. Um,
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a hard one. Regrets
1: in the sense of, obviously, we all wish we would have treated our fathers differently. I think, you know, Um, I I did have the fortune of many times, uh, even when he, you know, disowned me and everything else, telling him that I apologize for what I did and saying that truthfully that I did things wrong. And it doesn't mean that I don't think he did things wrong as well, but I did things wrong. And so I had the fortune of being able to tell him that. And so I am at peace with that because I had that opportunity. And then really like the last ending of it, and that's where when he passed, you know, it wasn't uh, as dramatic as it might've been because I'd started writing him letters because I started thinking, okay, well, what was the, what was the, what was haunting me while he was with us alive was, uh, have I done everything I can do, you know, because I have massive respect for him, you know? Um, he and I, you know, don't see eye to eye, just like you do with anyone, but I have massive respect. So it was haunting me. I was, I didn't, I felt like there was something left that I could do. And so the last thing I could think of to do was to start writing him letters. So I was writing him a letter like once a week. And then he wrote me a letter back finally saying, don't write me anymore. Everything has been said between us has been said. And that was the moment where I was like, That that's it. And it was like, you know, it was it was a good thing in a way, because it was just like, okay, I did everything I can do. And now it's not in my hands.
0: Do you find that in the practice of writing those letters you gain closure? And is that why you can sit before us today and and say, I did everything. I did everything that I could to try to rectify.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, like you guys know, we can't change the past. We can change what we do right now. So in those times, I was, like you said doing everything did i do everything before that no but i was doing everything i could do in that moment and it was not enough and so therefore it's no longer in my hands
4: yeah absolutely
2: how has that whole saga with your father informed how you are a father to your daughter
1: one thing is definitely the you know, cause he was an excellent father, always provided, always worked hard. And that's what also inspired me to have that role model of someone working so hard. Um, but is to realize, because he got into it with my sister and then, and I thought it was my sister's problem, which, you know, everyone's flawed. Everyone has problems. Um, and then, but then when he got into it with me, it was like, okay, well, you know, this is a pattern. Uh, and uh, so realizing that no matter how my daughter feels, And honestly, no matter how my daughter treats me to always have love for her and, uh, you know, not that I'm going to let her walk all over me or, you know, emotionally abuse me or anything like that. But, uh, I tell her that, you know, I'm always going to be here for you, you know, not going to always, you know, do what you want me to do for you and things like that, but I'm always going to be here for you. And I'm going to make that commitment because I made that commitment by bringing her into this world. And, uh, and that's something that, you know, it taught me that I am not going to ever disown my daughter, even if I have to have distance with her, you know, uh, because I know that what it's like to have or what it's like on the other end to be a child that, that truly does love your father, but maybe sometimes not treat them the right way, but it doesn't change how they actually feel about you
4: and, and the respect they have for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I want to pivot a little bit to to parenting. Um Yeah. We have another please. man in our midst that will
0: bring in a be bringing a baby into the world here soon. Um, really? Yeah, January.
1: Awesome. Do what what's the date? Uh 10th. Okay, man. Our daughter was January 14th, man. That's awesome. Oh, that's
2: crazy. Very cool.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um and and I I kind of want to I kind of want to go into what is what does leadership look like in uh in a a nucleus that's together in today's time, how do you serve your, your wife and, and your child in in a time where everyone is, is running circles around. This is the way to be, or this is how the, you know, the famous do it or the rich do it or or what have you, what has been your anchor or,
4: or how have you led your family since the birth
1: of, of your child? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I want to say before answering that, though, um, the the side that I was fortunate enough to have someone tell me before I had my daughter, before we had my daughter, and um, very grateful they did tell me this because it it would have probably been more challenging. But at least my own experience. Not everyone has this experience. My own experience is when my daughter came into this world. Um, it was you know an awesome, amazing experience. It was also shocking, and it was also. Um, without sounding over overly dramatic, it was a little bit, uh, (laughs) traumatic, uh, because, you know, you have this new person and they, they don't really need you. They just need mom. And, um, there's this weird kind of, you know, males have postpartum as well. And, uh, I definitely experienced that felt very weird and lost there for the first few months. And, uh, and my daughter also was colicky. So she was just crying and screaming all the time. And, and finally we got it taken care of but uh, yeah so it was just it was it was so hard and so painful but you know it, it was also a beautiful experience and very tender time um, because sometimes you know tenderness can also be depressing tenderness can also be painful um, but with balancing all that is that it goes to the relationship I think that you have with you know the woman of your child and that you have the similar values and you have friendship and you have trust um, trust above all those. Uh, so, you know, Lisa and I have the same, have trust for each other, uh, no matter what. And because of that, no matter how bad I've messed up and how bad she's messed up, you know, she'll, she'll tell you too. Um, we've never violated trust with each other. And, uh, that allows us to get through any situation and through work through any situation because, you know, if you know, you can trust someone, that's, that's the first step. And, uh, but if you lose that, Foundation, then it's all gone. So building off that foundation, having those similar values, uh, having trust, and uh, and then also you know determining what your roles are, man. You know, uh, my wife knows that I'm the type of person that you know I'm in Florida right now uh, that wants to be out there doing things and getting things done, and I will always take care of my family because uh, you know she, she got nervous from time to time with different situations in the world, and one thing that gave her a lot of um, peace. Was when she finally realized, like, what I told her it was like, "Hey, like, no matter what happens, no matter if like everything falls apart, you know, I will still do something to take care of our family." So fulfilling, really, honestly, those traditional roles, along with I think just the modern level of communication and respect. Um, I would say that's the only thing that's missing from traditional roles. Maybe is just the concept of mutual
4: respect for each other. And expressing
2: that, too. Well, that makes a lot of sense because um, I think sometimes it can be, well,
3: <clears throat> and thank
2: you for communicating what you did because uh, we're doing a home birth. Uh, that's something that Haley, my partner, she was comfortable with, something that I supported as well, knowing it's, you know, it's it's definitely a different route. It's going to have its own unique challenges. Um, but through the whole process, you know, she she's a licensed size therapist, so she's very into just healing and just rejuvenation and and just that whole, you know, health as am I, in my different ways, but doing the research, you know, coming across the whole aspect of like, look, pops needs to understand you're kind of going to be useless for a while in a lot of ways. And, and how do you juggle kind of like an ego thing? You know, you, you have this child, you think this child is just going to like you or love you or want to even be with you. And they may not for a while, you know, so how do you process that? How do you deal with that? But also know that in a lot of ways, this I try to wrap my head around it. Being for me, trying, because in the past I've, I've been up and down with different events in my life, but trying to stay stable mm. for her and for yes. the baby. Yes. You know, just be real, even keel. You know, what do try. you need? Like you said, and, and, and do what I can be empowered to do and, and really keep lights on, keep food coming, you know, try to handle anything that I can handle that she doesn't need to be handling while making sure our child stays alive. And then figuring out, all right, what are we committing to? What are we agreeing to? And what our balance or what we're going to handle is going to be so that the burden doesn't all fall on one person's shoulders. But recognizing certain burdens can only fall on her shoulders. So, you yeah. know, maybe I should carry, you know, try to make the trip up from the car with, you know, in one trip, get all the sure. grocery bags that I can uh, in that sort of metaphorical sense. Well, you kind of touched on it, it, Man, the rock. You got to be the rock.
1: You know, that's what the masculine energy and the masculine responsibility is, is to be the rock, the rock that someone can lay on uh, and be supported by, but also the rock that could be thrown at something that needs to be warded off, you know, and so to be a rock. And that's what I think is the job of the masculine individual in the relationship, which is obviously, you know, going to typically be the male uh, is, you know, to be that rock, the even keel. It doesn't move. And for kids, from my understanding with kids, um, that that's what they require from a father. It's not a father that's always, 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 always there for them or always playing with them or always this or always that. There's a father that's stable and consistent. You know, that's what they want.
4: And uh, that's what they need.
2: I dig it. We will yeah, do man. our goddamn damnedest.
1: <laughs> anyway, one thing too, one thing too, is like, it's a good opportunity to practice those stoic virtues, right? Mm. You know, um, I was listening to a lecture on stoicism when I drive down here, uh, that I listened to a couple of years ago, uh, originally. And yeah, man, it's like live to the greatest virtue. So, and that's what kept me going through those times, uh, with my daughter, not needing me or really even wanting me, uh, is just, you know, what's the highest virtue that I can live up to. And, and the highest virtue in my mind, I know in your mind as well is you know, being uh, a father. And then second to that is, you know, being a good partner to your spouse and uh, mother, your child. And that's, that's, that's it. That's, those are the highest virtues and everything else behind that can support that but is second
2: or third to that. Yeah. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I've even noticed, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing from god to 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 give people that period of of several months to kind of begin to prepare on the front end all right there's gonna be this very, very extreme change in your life you know here's almost a year to wrap your head around it you know before it hits um but even recognizing with some of my business tendencies and James and I you know in our private group we've we've had discussions about. This fallacy that a lot of business owners have that, oh, I, I work so hard because I'm always working. with it's like, oh, you might be hella inefficient. Yes. And and me having to recognize my lack of efficiency in a lot of categories and try to start to cut that at the knees, you know, mm-hmm. as much as possible. Because it's one thing without a child to to work, you know, X amount of hours in the day. But recognizing the shit that's coming up, me trying to be better and finding myself in moments where all right, maybe I was planning on doing X, Y, or Z. But if it absolutely can wait and I see that, you know, I haven't really given much attention to my partner today, you know, or or she needs to to, to communicate something to me, being better at recognizing that as quickly as possible and providing that time because it's the depth of the time and the presence that outweighs the amount of time Um, and and just trying to keep those sort of things in mind. Yeah, the, the
1: quality versus
2: the quantity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having, yeah, it's gotta be
1: like real actual personal quality time versus just a bunch of time. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. With business and with relationships and one thing too, you know, I'm sure that you found this as well. Uh, but this is, you know, my story is that, you know, my wife, there's a reason why, uh, before I met Lissa in 2011, uh, it was actually about exactly 10 years ago. It was December, 2011. Um, everything that I do would, would not be possible. And so, you know, and there's a reason why when I met her, I fell in love with her and it scared her off and she broke up with me. And then I pursued her for a year and a half to get back with her. And uh, because I knew that that was the person that I could trust, but that also had all the attributes that I needed to add to my life that I didn't have. And so, you know, it was an emotional decision, but it was a strategic decision as well. You know, I saw someone that I felt like I could help her and I felt like she could help me. And, 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 you know, and I also had the the chemical experience of, of love, you know, and lust for, um, but, you know, having that partner in your life uh, and having that family in your life, you know, your child as well, or children, uh, you know, forming them and molding them in such a way that is a benefit to them, but also benefit to you, you know? And so building that whole base, uh, is just so essential and, and so essential to the success, you know, to talk about men
2: as a man. Yeah, I've definitely found that in the past of, you know, kind of finding the right feminine energy to, to smooth out some of the edges that you just can't quite seem to get to yourself and, and being able to, to get that from them so that you don't have to then try to carry those qualities necessarily yourself uh, in sacrifice to your more masculine traits. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you.
1: And there's a reason why we all have inclinations, right? We all have inclinations and, you know, use your gifts and your, your inclinations and use them for good. And, you know, and again, like going on that dark side thing, it's like, you know, the inclination for males for violence, you know, what, 80% of the violent crime is committed by males. Uh, but that's, that's actually a virtuous trait just used in a non-virtuous way, right? Mm-hmm. No, most definitely. I feel like James has something to say.
4: No, I think that uh, what you're just
0: saying there can be mirrored by a lot of the way Jordan Peterson speaks, talking about the yeah. propensity for violence, being a uh, warrior in the garden instead of a gardener in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, if you don't have the propensity for violence, you're not meek, you're weak. Because you right. can't even take somebody's head off. If you had to, then mm-hmm. there's nothing courageous about what you're
1: doing. You're just mm-hmm. weak. That's it. Right. Yo, on the, on the meek thing, right? So, you know, so Savon mentioned God. So let's talk about God. If you don't mind, Savon, Savon, let me ask you. Sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, dude. I'm so sorry.
2: Savon, you're good.
1: Savon, Savon. I kid you not. When I order food on the phone, people think my name is Steve. I don't know why. (laughs) I try to say Keith. Maybe I make Uh, the too hard, and they think Steve. Anyway, um, so Uh, Savon, what religious, do you have a religious group you would identify yourself with? I grew up Christian.
2: Uh, I grew up super Christian. Almost every grandfather on my maternal side has been a pastor. Many on my uh, paternal side. I That's myself. <laughs> yeah, very, very likely. Uh, I myself. I just identify with God and 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 the, the highest of the high. You know, the Creator. And you cool. can see that in many forms in life. And religions often tap into it. But there's often a lot of stuff in it that kind of you know dilutes it to some degree or distracts from that all high in my opinion of course so of i don't course. practice organized religion got you so yes yeah, so non-organized okay cool so awesome but like we all know lessons from
1: you know your yes. history of christianity right because i'm, I'm mm-hmm. not a christian either um but you know the, the line about the meek will inherit the earth right you've heard that mm-hmm. one Everyone yes has, right james have you heard that
0: one Terrible translation
1: to English, but yes, right. Oh, you know. So I'm not. So you say. So you say what meek means? No, 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 no. No, Go right ahead. Go right ahead. I think I'm following
0: where you're going, and I want you to present this.
1: You got it. Got you. Well, yeah. So from my understanding, you know, I don't speak. I don't know what was the original written in. Hebrew and Greek. Yeah, Yeah, Hebrew Hebrew and Greek. Greek. Yeah, my wife's actually learning Hebrew. She's Jewish, so. Oh wow, that's cool. Um, but is is disciplined, right? The original word, I believe, I couldn't quote what the word is at this moment, is discipline. And that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Not the (laughs) meek will inherit the earth, which is synonymous with weak, um, but the discipline will inherit the earth. Because isn't that what we see out in God's world or, you know, uh, even just natural selection, right? Mm -hmm. The discipline is what's going to succeed, especially in our modern era. Because we've built a, 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 or rather a society has grown out of the human condition that rewards people who will do things for the long haul and focus on the long game versus the short game. You know, the short game worked a million years ago, doesn't work now. And also it could also kill you a million years ago too. So.
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting to make that uh, that delineation to discipline because uh, you know. I just for a long time, I also was raised extremely Southern Baptist. Uh, My dad was a deacon. Uh, Now my mom's side of the family is all Catholic and like tradition and Rosemary's and, you know, throwing rubber fetuses at abortion clinics. Like it's a little little too much. Uh, It's actually a lot too much for me, but um, yeah, yeah, the, uh, the meek, I mean, that phrase, that's something, you know, my dad was being a deacon in the church would always crack the Bible open sometimes crack my head open with the Bible. Uh, and so it was very interesting when I came across Jordan Peterson and he made, he made a big argument for meek not being what we understand it as as being weak and yeah. it being actually the individuals that are the warriors in the garden, because there's nothing courageous about not being able to get out of wet, a wet paper towel. You that's know? Right. So I think that that's, um, that that's important. I think that we've also lost a lot of. I mean, there's there's definitely archetypal application from the Torah, the Quran, the Bible. Oh, yeah. Take, I mean, any of the self help books or any any even fiction. I mean, Harry Potter, what have you. But I think that we've definitely um, dulled ourselves and and maybe almost intentionally from the powers that it, that be on the translations,
3: mm. the mm. intentional
0: miscommunication by altering the, the the meaning of words as we translate from one language to the other. Sure. No,
1: absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, by the way, so you y'all you shared your, your, uh, your history. So I'll the fortune of being raised by an atheist and an agnostic. Oh, so a different, what was that like, yeah, you know, it was cool. It was awesome. And so like, <laughs> you know, I was out there not throwing rubber fetuses at abortion clinics. I was out there at 16 years old trying to debate, uh, street preachers, right? Um, Like the ones in Athens that are on the microphone. Yep. (laughs) Yep. 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 I would be down there doing that and uh, doing a horrible job because I was too emotional about it. Uh, (laughs) But so I, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting growing up with that. Um, But then I would say though, even though my father was an atheist, uh, he was not really a militant atheist, which I think is something, it's an important distinction. Um, and he saw the utility with religion and I see the utility with religion, how I identify myself is, um, really a utilitarian is that, um, I don't, and it, you know, like we all know, whether it's like your genetic, uh, propensity or how you're raised or whatever, who knows, but, um, I, I find value at times in believing in a higher power. And sometimes I don't, and I know that sounds flippant, but, I find that whatever allows me to exercise my greatest good. So for instance, if belief in a higher power means that like touching on your point, James, if I believe I'm suffering because God hates me, or I believe that, you know, there's some someone that's going to whip me for eternal life and hell because I'm not doing something I should be doing. uh, I'm not going to believe that. But if I need to call upon that in a dark time where I may do something that's not going to be uh, in alignment with my true purpose and values. Um, I, might, I might call upon that uh, concept to help get me through that and uh, to, to lend me some type of power or source or, uh, or influence um, or inspiration. So yeah, I think, it, I think people throw out the baby with the bathwater too much with religion um, because it's easy to point at anything and point out all the flaws. You know, it's like, man, for instance, like, you know, getting into franchising, I've been doing a lot more reading about Ray Kroc. And actually, someone that knew uh, someone whose father knew him really well reached out to me on LinkedIn and talked to me about him and said, like, yeah, like, what you're reading is right. In a few places I'm reading different stories about him of like, he really did care. He was actually a person that really cared and was a good person and did actually want people to succeed with business and grow and everything else. And actually, you know, did all these things to uh, ensure that. So it's really easy when someone has any level of notoriety or success to just poke holes. And then there's no, there's no reward or talent in that anyone can do that and point out the blemishes, you know, doesn't make it special. Mm, Great point.
0: Yeah. I almost, I almost also think that, you know, when people come along and, I mean maybe we can agree that that Muhammad was a a good person if he was an actual good person and that Jesus at very Jesus Christ was a good person at very least these individuals that are prophetic um but I wonder what the uh what the the downfall is of having individuals that we can point to in the human experience that are prophetic that are the the bringer of good news um like do y'all think that that is Something that actually is to the detriment of religion or to the detriment of archetypal application of religion to life and then instead maybe throwing baby out with bathwater?
1: Makes it too easy of a target to tear down? What you're saying?
0: Yeah, I'm just curious if it like having a prophet that that has walked the earth and that stories are about, does that make it easier to just throw everything. Cause I mean, I will in text citate sometimes out of Mark or Matthew or, or Psalms or what have you, yeah. there is some very interesting things that have gone on in the Bible, even if they're just parables, even if they're yeah. just metaphors. Cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see the same thing in the Torah in some places and in the Quran, which I have all on the shelf, but it's interesting that, you know, for example, being around family who Older sister works for Chick fil A corporate. Younger sister is a Baptist collegiate ministry leader. Um, they're both married, and well, my younger sister's about to get married, and and kids, and yeah, until and eternity, whatever. But if I open the Torah or the Quran around them, it's almost as if they want to run. It's almost like yeah. they're
4: like, whoa, yeah,
0: whoa, 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 can't do that. So, like, are we are we too close minded as as a population, or are we too open minded to? Shit that doesn't matter, but closed-minded to stuff that we could take value from.
2: Mm. I think the short answer, yes. In general, people are closed-minded, and I think that back in the day, we have, we have to recognize what time we're actually in. And mm-hmm. I think that if we take it back thousands of years, day-to-day life was so different, yeah. you know. So even having a religious or spiritual practice had a much different role. And I like what you said, Keith. About the utilitarian nature, I haven't used or heard that term in relationship to the to spirituality or religion. But I would put myself in a similar camp, and I think that if people, to me, James, that the idea or the purpose of even putting prophets in the Bible, one is Hey, on paper, a lot of these people, I'm of the belief, could have actually walked the earth. Um, but I think the thing that's important people to keep in mind and this is at least how I try to pull at some of the things that are in in these religious texts. Is that there's supposed to be a demonstration that, hey, the ordinary man, woman can be extraordinary Mm. given the right situations and context, you know, and it won't be everybody who reaches these heights, just like not everybody is disciplined. So most people won't inherit the earth, but maybe read through some of this game, get (laughs) some perspective on some of these stories and some of these things these people have been through and take from it what serves you.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think you touched on your point, James, it can all be used for good and for bad, right? Just like any situation in our life, you know, God forbid the loss of a loved one, you know, um, what's it going to do? What are you going to do with it? Right. You know, uh, is it going to be the reason you're going to be a drug addict? Is it the reason you're going to go shoot a place up? Or is it the reason why you're going to go save lives? You know, uh, someone that I got to know uh, lost her husband uh from post-concussive syndrome he was a fighter at about 30 fights and he got uh hit in sparring by a bigger person and for the next two weeks he started to act out um and he was like aggressive and explosive and things like that not acting like himself and then it it, it culminated one sunday night they get an argument he goes in the garage and he shoots himself and they have a two-year-old child at the time and so i had the fortune of getting to know this woman Uh, During this time and her journey from this and uh, she used it to be a ringside physician, you know, to get into that because she was was a pediatrician and so she's used it as a reason to serve and uh, as a greater purpose and that's what got her out of that situation. And again, just like with her touching on her point earlier, she tried to. uh, jump with the, uh, be with the widow groups and things like that. And she's like, man, you know, these women lost their husband 10 years ago and they're still mourning the husband like it was yesterday and and acting like he was God or like he was Jesus or Mohammed, you know, Uh, so, um, you know, her life is good now and uh, her daughter's life is good. And uh, it's because she had an empowering philosophy coming from that. And uh, yeah, and like you're saying, James, all these things are twisted and used as methods of control and uh, the easiest thing to do with it, and we all do this, the easiest thing to do is the heuristical thing to do, which is to just paint it a color, you know, paint it blue and say it's blue, where really it's, it's a whole lot of different shades of a whole bunch of things. And something like the Bible, uh, the, the New Testament, borrows so much from the, the great philosophers and so many things uh, that, you know, so, so who knows, you know, and who cares? Uh, if it is the inspired word of God or not, uh, the point is, is that all those teachings are largely universal. And, um, and and even some of the more archaic, this sounds insulting, but some of the more archaic teachings in the old Testament, you know, some of those as well. um, It's a little bit more edgy, a little bit darker, but some of those are important teachings as well. And then also you got to look at the context of their time, right? So and that's one thing, too, honestly, like just to be just to be really open that I think is unfortunate about our modern era is we judge too many people and too many schools of thought based on our modern perspectives and not upon the perspectives that were around at that time. Right. And the era in which they lived. Right. So instead of learning what we can from individuals from, you know, 100, 500, a 1, thousand years ago, we uh, judge them. You know, and we, and it's easy to be Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, you should have done this and this, (laughs) and you know, but it's like, Hey man, you need to acknowledge the good and acknowledge what they did and what you can learn from it. Cause if you don't, you erased all of history and you have nothing. And now you're back to square one where we are climbing down from the goddamn trees. So there it is. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh.
0: There it is.
1: Yeah, um, I like that philosophy. Key. I do. Right that's there. the thing, too, man. It's like you know, I'm like I, you know, I'm pretty a religious, but you know, uh, dude, I value I value all of the religions. I value them so much because um, I know what good they can do. I used to always, with those street preachers, tell about all the people that re- were killed by religion and tortured by religion and everything else. Um, but what about all the people that were saved? Mm-hmm. You know, there were so many people that were saved. So many people that were inspired. And breathe life into them. And uh and and man, why why not preserve that? Why not build that up? Why do you got to tear down the whole goddamn thing uh because of that? No, 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 no. Keep it, build it, just make it better.
2: Be flexible in the uh in the
1: Right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And that's one thing that's beautiful, isn't it though, too? Is that a lot of times the most judging people are are the are the people that preach (laughs) non-judgment, right? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and that's one thing actually that I love in my course with you know like with with growing Kemner Boxing and 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 like we're doing now because now it's like on another level with franchisees where it's like I'm not just talking to a whole bunch of people from that are like upper middle class you know from this background da 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 like believe it or not I'm talking to a lot of immigrants a lot of people from different places in the world a lot of people from different backgrounds and it's so beautiful to have something like business and like franchising that unites so many different people from, from India, from different parts of America, from the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And uh, man, you, we got, we we got to find these uh, uniting factors. It's like, you know, when I was coaching all the time at our location, in Athens with Kevin boxing, you know, I, I was so proud that, and people still tell us this all the time. I have people that are on the left side of the political spectrum and people that are on the right side of the political spectrum, both say in uh in confidence that they feel welcomed and that they feel accepted and that they feel like this is a safe place for them because too often when people say it's a safe place there's actually something else behind that and there's some type of uh uh, um, authoritarian uh attempt at creating a safe place versus just actually being a place that accepts people and acknowledges the different and, the, and acknowledges really the similarities and what the greatest purpose is with our lives, which I think is self actualization, right? And, uh, you know, and I think everyone can agree on that no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, how can you self actualize? Whether it, it's being a, a, a uh, someone that does charitable works or, or you know, what have you, or, or someone that grows a business, and also, by the way, too, if you don't grow a business, you're selfish because you're not helping your clients, but you're also not growing a team of people that could be supported off your business. It's like right now we have 10 people at our location here in Athens that uh, or here. I'm in Florida in in Athens. And uh, you know, we could have done that if I want to grow in the business. If I just would have kept it me, we're just been me and my wife and you know, we could be greedy and everything else, but um, but yeah. So, so it's just, it's a beautiful thing, but yeah, people get wrapped up too much and they forget what the purpose is, right? Which is, you know, we're all human beings here. One thing actually, just to go crazy here. you guys ready for crazy? Let's do. Hey, it. Get crazy. real quick. So, dogs. Okay, dogs, right? <laughs> dogs. Uh, I used to be a dog person, all right? And it's not that I hate dogs, so don't, don't hate me. but it's not that I hate dogs, but I am no longer a dog person. And what I am is I'm actually a people person, right? I like people more than I like dogs. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I've met some people who like dogs more than like people. You guys met people like that?
2: Absolutely. Always confused.
1: (laughs) And, you know, it just, I don't know, that somehow just like really rubbed with me the wrong way. And, you know, man, you you like this dog. Well, all the reasons why you like this dog are actually really, really negative reasons if you really think about it deep. Right, they're they're passive. They don't have their own opinions. They don't offer you really any value besides just something to hug on, and it's like your own little pet slave, right? Um, And again, like we have two dogs. Okay, we have two dogs. Like okay, Um, and it's a value for my for my little girl. But dude, like you gotta be you gotta be in love with people, man. You know, people are what's going to save your life. The dog, man. You know, in very few situations is going to save your life. Yeah, it offers some protection, but outside of that. I love people a lot more than I love dogs. And that's a big shift in my life is that I used to be a dog person. I used to be more antisocial being a dog person. I used to be kind of one of those people like, Oh, I like dogs more than people type attitude a little bit. Um, oh, people suck. I used to say that a lot. Uh, I don't say that. And I think that's part of the shift. So just go totally left field on you there.
0: Are you, are you speaking to, um, individuals? Maybe there, there may be, a necessity to be around more givers and be a giver yourself instead of a taker and instead of a matcher because dogs give, they don't do anything, Mm. but give, they don't take anything from you. They just give and they give and they give and they give and they give, and they see you, you leave for five minutes, they come back, they give in more. Are you speaking to the psychology of where most people are
1: at, where they'd prefer to take instead of Mm.
3: give?
1: Yes. I believe you synthesized it, James. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because my life is in service to other people, even though I'm serving myself in the process, you know, being a coach, um, being a franchisor, everything. I'm down in freaking Florida right now. I drove seven hours last night to get down here to help. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's my problem is I don't like people that that don't want don't want to give themselves to either an endeavor or to somebody else. Um, and uh, yeah. People that selfish man, selfish. But what's important to remember is like people twist selfishness, right? You mm-hmm. know, and it's like that whole thing. It's like you know, you guys know this one. I know you know this one, lot <laughs> About Savan, like the, the when the when the when you lose pressure in the cabin, right, and the air mass drops down, right? Who do you put it on first, Savan? You put it on. Be
2: <laughs> myself or not?
1: You selfish asshole. You're an <laughs> asshole. How dare you? you put it on your newborn child? No, you put it yourself <laughs> first, so you can do that for them, right? And the only reason I'm in a position to help other people is because I've helped myself and I continue to help myself. And anyone that knows me knows that that's not just me saying, oh, I help myself and I think I help other people. You know, I I help myself and that's why I'm in a position to be a rock for my wife and for my daughter and a rock for my people that I work with where they know Keith is stable. Keith's on point. You know, uh, Keith might F up, but he's going to get it right back after that um, and be consistent. Actually, that's what background on my phone right now is just simply reminding me of how this consistency, consistency, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Actually, yo, you guys want to know Ray Kroc's uh, favorite quote that he gifted to this person's uh, father that their grant uh, that uh, the daughter shared with me the other day. Can I read sure. that to y'all? Or read that. To y'all? It's beautiful guys. I never heard this one. Cause you know, you guys know all the quotes just like I do. I know all the quotes. But here, so press on. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education alone will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are
4: omnipotent. That was Ray Kroc's favorite saying. And
1: it's true, man. We all know smart people that don't do crap. They don't give anything. They don't create anything. They don't build anything. And they don't do anything great in this world. And, uh, and I think if you have a brain that you can use, uh, you are neglecting your duty and your obligation as a human being to do something good. And, uh, and I honestly, it's like, you know, that, that which you do not hate, you will eventually tolerate, as Malcolm X says, right? And I, I hate a lot of things. Uh, But I also love more things that I hate and the things that I hate inspire
4: me to do good. Mm. Man, this shit was like a TED Talk, Keith.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you got to do more public speaking, sir. Well, I mean, so at these uh, expos that we do, franchising expos, I, I do public speaking, too. Uh, so like up at, we'll be up in New York. I'll be doing a presentation there at the expo that we have, and uh, you know they one in Atlanta, and uh, yeah, it was a cool little perk because we do these uh, franchise expo shows all around. So now I get the opportunity. So right now the one I do is on leadership, and uh, that was, it went over pretty well. It's cool though because I get all I get all preacher say on I get all preacher on them,
2: uh-huh. and,
1: and people come in man it was cool. So like the one in Atlanta, I started off it was like three people sitting there. When I finished, there was twenty people sitting there. Mm. That was cool. You
2: know, real time feedback. Yeah, hey, man. and it's funny. Even just your energy, you know, I I recognize the the enhancement of your energy from the time that I first met you to now, and it's just cool because we never had that much time to actually just chop it up. It was very—I was checking people in on our damn iPad to your class, and then yeah. our interactions were still very brief for the um for the fight. But no, man, this this has been a tremendous gift, and and I can I can just feel it coming off of you, man. Just the the authenticity, the genuineness. About just the, the well, upbringing.
1: and to so like what you're saying, Sivan, because you know you, you seem like a different man as well. And I know you are. I hope you are. You know, I hope you're not the same dude you were back then, right? And yeah, same with no. you, James. Um, but it's like
4: uh you guys
1: are real, and that, that's a cliche. It sounds so stupid, but you know, like <laughs> you, you gotta be, you gotta be honest and legitimate, man. And there's a reason why people. Um, you know, not as many people as I'd like so far, because I just haven't got the word out enough yet. But there's a reason why someone's willing to, to give me thousands of dollars uh, for a franchise. Um, and like I've had people do that over other people because they just were not sincere, you know, and sincerity is the most important thing. And if, if you're sincere and you come off like an asshole, it's because you're an asshole and you got to fix that. Right. And uh, you know, if you're sincere and you come off like, you know, like an egotist, you're an egotist. You gotta fix that. And so that's my opinion is that you know, I'm confident in that the work I've done with myself, not that I don't have so many things that are so horrible about me still, and ways that I mistreat people, um, and those closest to me from time to time. But I can be honest with it because I'm I'm always working on it, I'm always owning it. And the second I, I, I stop owning it, it's going to grow and get worse.
4: And, you know, yeah, I can't let that happen. Yeah, I think you're speaking to something that uh, that we also like to hammer home
0: every every podcast that, you know, the abdication of personal responsibility kills the
4: man. Mm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, and, and also as well, it's like going back to the dog thing. Like a dog's not responsible, you know, that's why it's on a leash or it should be on a leash. (laughs) You don't walk your dog with a leash. You'd wear a leash on your dog. That irritates me. Um, But uh, because again, it's a thing of like, you're responsible for your dog. But yeah, like you said, if you're a man or a woman that doesn't have, you know, that abdicates your personal responsibility, you know, you are choosing to be a domesticated animal that belongs Mm. as a pet for somebody.
3: And that's it. the state. (laughs) <laughs> and What's we're that? Clipping. Yeah, we're the
1: am- state the yeah. state. yeah yeah no exactly and you know like look at our educational system right you know the educational system this is kind of a cliche too it's like every time i go into this i feel like i'm giving a cliche but like but here's one that you might not have thought of is that when you go through school because began to be to be clear man i have very little schooling i went to montessori school which is not a benefit for me because i'm very self-directed and motivated so i just got good at art and i literally didn't even learn how to multiply it Okay, Um, and then so I went to St. Joseph's for two years, uh, Catholic school, the catchment for high school. Then I went to high school and I attended literally a semester of high school before I dropped out. Um, So I have no schooling. And so everything I've learned is self-education and the society and having my parents and everything else. Um, But think about it. When you're in school, you're taught that all your value and your work is determined by who? The teacher. That's right. Not you. Not determined by you. You don't have a judgment on it, it's about somebody else. Like, so what the hell does that teach you going into life, and into the world? Is like you're always looking for how what you're doing is judged by other people and how do they rate it? What do they think? And that just programs you for a horrible life, I think, a horrible life. Because even if you are in a position where you're an entrepreneur or you're, you know, you're working in a business or part of an institution, you need to have that self value and that self judgment ability. And so, and, you know, there's a lot of things that are so wrong with it. And that's where we're debating, honestly, what to do with my daughter um, because of a few different things uh, with the schooling systems and um, how we can give her an empowering start. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, and that's a big challenge as a parent.
2: Yeah, I've already, uh, I've thought about it. We've talked about it some. I'm like, you know, it's a blessing. We don't got to make this choice for many years.
1: Yep. Get a lot of time to think about it. It's still hard when it comes time to think about, though.
2: Yeah, I hard. can only imagine.
1: I tell you, man, that's why I want to grow this darn franchise because I want to take my daughter around the country and maybe around the world. And to me, that's the best education. Also, too, one more uh, throw at uh, the modern educational system is think about this as well. Uh, and this, I think, this was a benefit for me to not have this. Is when you spend your life in school, right, going up all the way into college and spend mm-hmm. your early twenties in school, you're around people that are your age, right. That is so uncommon throughout the history of humanity. And it's so negative, I think, and, and, and detrimental to an individual and, the, and their development. And that's where I think it was of great benefit for me to be around my, at the time, 65-year-old father all the time. And he be my best friend when I'm 17 years old because I get a better perspective. And sure, I developed some old tendencies that I had to snap out of. But still, man, you spend all this time around a bunch of idiots that are you know your age. Um, Who the hell is going to teach you what to do? And then conversely with that, you don't spend time with anyone younger than you. So you don't ever ever learn how to lead or break things down or uh, have understanding for somebody. Um, Yeah. And it's just, it's just, it's a real shame. And I think it's of, of real importance that we incentivize mentorship programs. And things like that and that's what i do man i've you know i don't need an institution to tell me to do it or formulate it for me it just naturally happens where i have a lot of people that i talk to that are you know younger than me and some that are older than me that either mentor me or i mentor them
2: yeah uh years ago when i was doing i was selling knives for a company and my manager at the time i basically got into this training program and one thing in that that he taught me or taught us was that to, to continue to progress in life, right, to, to that, that image you showed us by consistency, yeah. to be able to keep adding more from that kind of power of that centrifugal force. Yeah. You <sighs> need to be able to teach people that are underneath your level, mm. have peers to get perspective from and, and kind of feel a, a, a closeness, camaraderie, yeah. and then people above you to learn from. And to your point, being in school your whole life, robs you of that it places the people that you do learn from your teachers on this pedestal in a deity-like fashion where Mm -hmm. you can't question what they say they solely determine your success or not and then you're in this mindset where you think you're above the people who happen to be a few grades behind you and on top of that it puts you in this framework where you think that life is a yes or no question or an essay Mm -hmm. and everything you do through life all of your challenges Are timelines, and literally yes or no questions for the most part. And life, like you said, is not one coat of paint. It is many, many, many different hues and pigments and and, and shades. And I've noticed it in people. When they get out, especially ones who go to college, and then they go to grad school, and then they want to keep chasing this next piece of paper, which is really what you're giving them paper to get another piece of paper back. And they get out, and it's like, fuck, this life shit is... Damn, this this is a lot more complex than uh, than that essay I had to turn in. <laughs>
1: that's right, that's right, and and you know, and also, man, too. It's like so. My you know, my my mom has a degree. I can't remember what it's in. I think it's an art. But my father has a PhD in neuroscience. But he told my sister and I, you know, don't go to college. Don't go to college unless you have something that you need to go to college for. And that's what we're telling our daughter too. Um, and so my sister's a CPA uh, for. Uh, the CDC, and so it's like you know she went to college because she didn't have anything else she wanted to do. So she got a job that paid her good money and something you know that's okay. And she has her great quality of life with me. It was it was no college at all, and that's totally fine. And um, it's funny, like you guys know Peter Thiel, right? You know that mm-hmm.
3: is, yeah. So
1: you hear him talk about college and what it mm-hmm. is, yeah. And Now we need to define what it is, right? So we need to define what education is, what college is. You know, it's it's not the modern day Catholic church where you have your deacons and everything else. And you're trying to ascend through it. And, you know, I remember like, you know, James, when I met you, man, I, at that time, I was just kind of getting over the fact that I hadn't gone to college and everything else. And I felt lesser than all those college kids in some ways. um, And, and put them on a pedestal because, you know, they had achieved this, you know, this, this sainthood or this position in this, uh, you know, in this system. And, uh, but then as I continued to grow, Myself, I realized, wow, that doesn't mean anything. And now people like that work for us. So. <laughs> and then you also see, see, see the folly of their ways, right? And again, you know, some people obviously gone on to be successful, and, but you see the individuals that um, they didn't learn the necessary skills along the way. And, and, and that's the thing, too, is I feel, I feel horrible for generation upon generation of, of, of humans that, that think that that's their, 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 uh, their savior is is education and it's not man it's like with that quote like education is not gonna do anything for you you know um all it can do is just give you perspective but if you do nothing with that it doesn't matter and also it doesn't give you good perspective most of the time anyway especially the way it does now so yeah better start by saving yourself yeah no exactly exactly and also man like teach by yeah. your actions right yes. you know because that's the thing too is that uh man, how many people can talk a good game, right? Everyone Mm -hmm. can talk a good game, right? Even people that suck at talking can talk a good game. (laughs) Um, And then also like on on the other side of talking a good game too, is like think about the people that ask for advice or um, try something and they actually don't do it with sincerity of wanting to succeed. They do it so that they had a way that they can tell people they tried to do it and it didn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like I experience this, unfortunately, sometimes where I tell them, okay, you know, hey, you got to do this, do this. And okay, I did that. And how'd it go? It didn't work. Okay, well, now what are you going to do? Well, I don't know. It doesn't work. So I'm I'm, going to be a failure is like really honestly what they're like. Their conclusion is almost. And, you know, so so like same thing with health, man. People like, oh, you know, I did this. I did that. I did this. And it's like, well, we'll find the next thing you can do. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. don't give up. And it goes to what you're saying, Savon, is that like with education, it's like, oh, well, I checked this box and this box and this box. And, you know, I didn't get accepted with my, you know, my whatever. And uh, or I I didn't get the classes I want. So it's just it's over. Game over. And it just teaches that. And uh, and that's where, you know, I I had a great benefit of of not being in school and not being uh, indoctrinated into being a cog in a system because it's it's designed for that. You know, I know some other. You know, I think by the way, I think the United States is the greatest country on Earth, um, and in the history of Earth, uh, it's not perfect, but I think it's the greatest. And but there's other countries like I think it's one of the I think it's maybe Sweden or something like that. Where in high school they start doing a um, like an internship for like yeah. a trade, and it doesn't mean that that's what they're destined for for life for servit serv- servitude to to be a plumber or whatever. But they're able to actually learn a skill. That's something that actually will transfer into a really good paying job uh, if they choose to do so. And then it's, you know, it's a free place. So if they're like, okay, I don't want to be a plumber. I want to do this. They can do that. That's fine. They can go back to college, whatever, you know. Um, and so we do not incentivize that enough. And uh, it's, it's to our detriment.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of the, um, what, what, what I would identify. Uh, some could call it a transition point, but the ultimately the, the decline of the greatness of America is mm-hmm. because it was built upon action. You know, sure, some people sitting around the corner thinking and and writing up, you know, contracts and deeds and all that. That's where a lot of the finessing happened. Um, But the country was built off of doing. And I always like to tell people the highest form of thought is action. And being in school, they just usually teach you to just stay so cerebral that you are removed from your actual body. And if you're not in your body, it's going to be very hard to do anything. Mm -hmm. And I've suffered with this at times too, because I went super extreme on academics in high school. And it wasn't until I got to, wasn't until I got to college, I had to make a conscious choice to be like, you know what, fuck school. I did all of this. I thought I was gonna go Ivy League, didn't get in. Man, (laughs) fuck this shit. At this point, let me live life a little bit more and uh, and not place such a high priority so much of my self worth in these damn grades I'm getting because ultimately life is not your damn GPA and. Yeah, yeah. You know
1: what it is? It's solidified in one way that I love that James Clear said it. uh, Great book, Atomic Habits. If you guys have Mm -hmm. read it, you can save on your not. I've heard of
0: it. have not read it.
1: Great. James.
0: It's one of those books that I think is mental (laughs) masturbation and what I'm doing day in, day out. So, but yes, I know I have it and it's on my shelf, like two feet away. On that
1: note, we'll see this is exactly on the mental jerk off note that you just said (laughs) is you know, so he states it there and it's, you know, it's not his thought. He probably took it from somebody, but is movement and achievement. Right. And so like, similar to what you're saying, the masturbation thing, um, I've been stuck there and I'm getting better about not being stuck. They're like way better. And that's why I'm doing big boy business instead of little boy business. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> is, is the, uh, I told my wife that too. She's like, yeah, that's like her thing too. Um, <laughs> is, uh, that you get stuck in the movement thing. Like you're saying, Savon. it's like, oh man, I read this book. You know, oh, I read this thing. I had this, you know, I learned this new concept. Oh, it's so cool. What's this other coolest thing I can learn? And that's <laughs> a bunch of movement. You're moving, but you're not achieving anything. And uh, yeah, so it's really, cause you get a dopamine hit from the movement, you know, because you're like, oh, I learned something new. You know, you get all the good feelings and everything else. You feel like you're growing yourself and you potentially are. But you aren't actually one thing that my dad always said is that, you know, potential is the rule, right? It is the rule and actualized potential is the exception. But yeah, so movement, don't mistake movement for achievement. That's something that I tell myself all the time because I'll get caught in that trap over and over and over again. And what's important is I call it out on myself where I'm like, oh, let me learn about this, learn about that. And it's like, okay, what the F am I going to do with it? Let me do something with this. And uh, that's what actually has led me to read less books. Because mm-hmm. I, you know, went through a couple of years where I read like 25 books a year and things like that. And that was good. That was good. Um, but, you know, I, I, that's tacked back. And on the occasion that I'm like, oh, I'm not reading as many books as I used to. I'm like, oh, well, I just, <laughs> I'm doing more than I used You're to. You're
2: achieving more. Yeah. Yeah. Way no, I'm more. So, I'm so glad you said that because there was a period where it hit me too. Um, a few years ago, maybe like sophomore year or college, I was kind of in this, in this flow of like, oh, I'm, I'm doing so much growth. Like learning all this new stuff. And then it hit me, it was like, oh shit, I'm just addicted to self-help now, and that's a yep. thing. And uh and having to recognize, like, no, cool, you know, it's something I say a lot, and it's kind of like a slogan for native assets, but like knowledge applied is power. Mm-hmm. You know, too many people think that knowledge is power. Like, no, it's not, it's potential, like you just said. Exactly. You have to and, apply and, and,
3: it.
1: And, and you're right, yeah, knowledge isn't power, it's applied power, which you learn that from a self-help book, but What's important is you took that damn thought you got from a self help book and you applied it, right? Yeah. Um, And man, but that's one thing that was important to note, though. Though conversely, just to just to be opposite of what we're saying, mm-hmm. because I am a, a debater uh, by heart. I want to be a lawyer when I stop boxing. I want to be a constitutional lawyer, actually. Um, but it just you know, I thought uh, my dad thought you could still take the bar in a state and become a lawyer, which was, used to be the case. But then when I found I had to go to law school, I was like, f that, right? Um, <laughs> anywho. Uh, So just to give the converse point on that, though, is that, yeah, don't wrap up all your time that should be involved with achievement, with, you know, movement, right? With all this crap, of you're learning all stuff that you're not truly going to apply or aren't ready to apply yet, even. Um, Now, though, on the other side of the coin is I will see people that they do some achievement, but then on their free time, they are not growing themselves. And they're engaged in activities that maybe you could argue are not or are doing the opposite or decreasing themselves, but at least they're not moving the needle there um, and growing themselves. And then they stall out. So that's just the other side that's important to watch out for. Because, man, it's amazing. As I talk to more and more people that are at higher levels than myself, but they're stalled out a little bit, right? They're kind of stuck at this one point. And I'll tell them about a concept or something that I learned about. And they're like, oh, wow, I never heard of that. And it's like, oh, well, shit, sounds like you got to maybe do a little bit more learning. Um, Mm. So yeah, that's just the other side of the coin. But again, like you said, the self-help thing is an addiction. And uh, it's just like eating damn too much food, right? It's good for you, but you can eat way too much of it and be obese and die. And same thing with self-help. I know so many people, or I've met so many people and know of so many people that it's almost like a red flag if you're too much into self-help. You know what I mean? It's like, if you like are always like saying the things and talking about these mm-hmm. specifically certain things, it's like one way Jordan Belfort says it, that I like, you guys know who that is, right? Of course mm-hmm. you do. Of course you do. Straight
0: um, line because, selling. He's a, well, I know him from a, obviously the movie, but the movie, I yeah. uh, I've
1: dove into a lot of his straight line selling. Yeah. No, we teach straight line. Um, okay. So James, you know what, what he says there where he's like about the secret, right? About the book, the secret. You heard him talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cute. I love it, right? But he's like, yeah, if you light your candle and you're in your you know bedroom and you're 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 believing the check will appear. The only thing that will appear in the mail is an eviction notice and your wife will be sleeping with your neighbor. You know? <laughs> and like, you know, that's a secret. You don't, you know, think an elephant's gonna appear and it's gonna appear. And uh, too often people will fall in that trap. I'll tell you someone else, just to be polarizing, you know who mm-hmm. I don't like as well. Oh no, I mean, excuse me, I like Dora Belfort. No, who we I go. don't like, though, in the self-help world, okay? Let's hear it. Dude, it's like It's like freaking nails on a chalkboard. Simon Sinek.
2: Ah, uh, I'm not super familiar with that. Interesting.
4: Yeah. Why don't you like him? Because <sighs> um, I feel I mean, James, a similar
1: way about, about Lewis Howes. I feel you on that. I feel you in that. I would say that he doesn't seem to represent Don't get me wrong. I'm not a big fan of his. Um, I mean, I respect him for what he's done. In his hustle, but um, yeah, I feel like he's more of just like, hey, I hang out with this person, I talk to them. So, but we're the same Bob,
2: I've gotten yeah. yeah. Simon Cynic is
1: kind of is this dude. He's like, I have I have you know the knowledge, you know, and and <laughs> you know his face and everything else. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not just his face. I don't like. I don't like his face either. I'm sure he's a uh, great guy. He's a nice guy. But like many of these individuals, what was he like? He was just a writer. He was a writer, and then now he teaches leadership for corporations or whatever. And, you know, I've just, whenever I see someone share his stuff, it's kind of on that line of like, it's toxic self-help, it's toxic self-help management of like, you know, like, yeah, don't be wrong. Like, oh, you should take care of your people and care about your people. They're more than just a number. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Duh. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not a psychopath. I don't need you to tell me that. Right. Mm. And, and if you're trying to tell that to a psychopath, it doesn't matter. They won't hear you. OK, uh, it just makes maybe the employees feel better, perhaps. But uh, like I remember I was listening to something recently uh, when I was like, let me just delve into his thing for a second just to see how much I don't like him. Um, and he was <laughs> talking about like, oh, millennials, it's not your fault. You know, and I'm a millennial, man. I'm 34 years old. And he's like, it's not your fault. It's, you know, it's you were put into this system which isn't made for you to succeed. And, you know, all this like stuff like that. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is toxic. It's is so toxic.
0: That same thing that you're talking about is something that I see from a lot of psychotherapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists nowadays that are like, hey, uh, it's all childhood trauma. Every single thing that could right. possibly yeah. happen, you beat the yep. shit out of your wife, childhood trauma. Nope. Right. It's your mom's fault.
1: Right. It's not your fault. <laughs> not your fault. Yeah. What? So exactly. Pass the buck. And, you know, what's funny though, it's like on that note of the millennial thing, right? So it's like, you know, y'all are like, you're know, like, what, late 20s? How old are y'all? 26, about to be 27. And so on, on. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you're all millennials too, right? So here you are, man. You, you come out into the prime of your life, man. Great recession comes. Boom. Right. 2008, <laughs> 2010, man. It's lost. Boom, boom, boom. Then, man, you just start to get your feet under you. Then what happens? Bam! Pandemic happens. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, you know, but it's like, just contrast that with history, right? Yeah. It's like, think about, you know, you guys have probably seen the lines of like, um, you know, if you were born in like, uh, the late, uh, early 20th century, you know, late 19th century, uh, it's like, you know, Oh, here you are, you're graduating high school to world war one. Then right after that is a pandemic. Then, uh, then you start getting your feet under you 10 years later is world war two. Right. And, uh, and, and freaking the atomic bomb and then it's mutually assured destruction. Right. And so if you look at all these people that have succeeded like during the 20th century, you realize, oh, cause I used to have like this fallacy of like believing, oh man, 20th century, that was the time to be alive. You know, did all this crap like that. But it's like, dude, it's always the same. It's always gonna be pretty yeah. much like how it's always been. That's one of Jim Ron's great sayings. And uh, yeah, man, it's like one, one, one meditation that I love uh, that really impacted me greatly uh, that I learned from uh, uh, Brian Tracy. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, self-help author, he's excellent. Um, he's, oh man. Gold. Anyway, he, uh, so this was in one of his books. He talks about literally just visualizing this. So not like saying this is how it is, or this is how it was or anything. Just visualize this is that imagine you are across the universe and you're just, you know, the energy you are as a person or whatever, right. Whatever concept you want to think or believe and that you chose to be born mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 1987 with me, you know, 1990, whatever it was for y'all. And you chose to be born in the exact, to the exact parents, in the exact house, in the exact area. And you chose all that. You chose, you picked out how you look, everything about you, how tall you are, everything, all your positive points and all your net, you chose all of that. And just to visualize you as energy or whatever, and picking that. And man, wow, wow. That, that has helped me a lot, uh, specifically a couple of years ago when I was struggling with some different things with my father and whatnot, we're just like, man, I chose my father. I chose my mother. I chose to be born in Athens, Georgia, you know, this little college town in the middle of nowhere. I chose all of that. All right. And then that completely changes for me, how I approached everything else from that point. Um, instead of being, Oh, I wish it was this way, you know, or I wish I was born in 1960 because then I would have had the eighties, you know, to rock it, you know? So
2: I'm so glad you just went into that because that has actually been one of the cornerstones of my spiritual practice the last several years. Wow. Is that idea because it for me it ties a lot into this idea of reincarnation and yeah. actualization being the ultimate goal of incarnating yes. uh, and reaching nirvana and all of that is that we come into this uh accelerator of life that is designed to impart lessons and force you to level up. But you don't always rise to the occasion, right? But that as you go through this over subsequent iterations, you kind of usually, in, in, in a positive sense or in an ideal, every time you come back in the game, you get a little bit better. You, t- you, you, you still have a little bit of wisdom from that past go around or some things like, ah, fuck that up. All right, let's, let's load it up one more time. Drop me back in, coach. I can do yeah. better this time. Yeah. And those parameters that we set for ourselves are basically the, the outside, that 20% that we can't control that we need to actualize that potential that is the 80% that we do control. That's and, right. um, thank you so much for, for, for vocalizing yeah, that's beautiful, that. Because- Simone, that's
1: beautiful. One more thing with ideal, man, that was a big, another visualizing tool that helped me. I think it's from Brian Tracy as well. Um, but is that your ideal is not a distant shore you will arrive at. I don't know where the hell I got that from actually, but it really, man, Oh, Because, you know, I'm driven. I have an ideal. Right. I want a six pack. I kind of have a six pack. You know, I want all <laughs> this like great stuff. And um, but whenever I fall a little bit short or, you know, if the lines in the six pack aren't as good as I want them to be. Right. Um, it's like, man, I'm, oh, I'm not hitting my ideal. You know, And so then I would be like, well, do I need to not have ideals, right? Because you get into that whole thing of like, oh, you need not have ideals and all that type of thing. Um, but I think that ideals are essential because whenever I l- I've let them go, uh, it's been a horrible life and it's been depressive and, and I start to lean towards destructive activities. Uh, so, but my ideal and our ideal for ourselves is a guiding star. So it's not going to be a distant shore we're going to arrive at, but by following that star, you will end up. In a better position and a better destination than you would if you didn't. And so chasing after that, which you will never catch, you will end up better than if you didn't. And that is just huge to me because I would get so frustrated. I'd be like, oh, the same thing with business too. It's like, oh man, you know, goal is, you know, we're gonna do, you know, this, this many thousand this month. And then you don't hit it. And you're like, oh crap, you know, not what I do. And it's like, well, you might have done better by setting that goal than if you had. And then also what's the feedback, obviously set the goal next time to change and do different, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't set a goal. Maybe the goal was too far. Maybe you didn't do what you need to do, right? Maybe you do something else, Um, but don't fall into the trap of not having an ideal or a target to hit.
4: Very well said. Say a TED talk, man. (laughs) That's
1: right, man. Well, Savon, I'm happy to hear about your spiritual practices, man. That's cool. That's awesome. And I love that. uh, You know, I think, you know, it sounds like you're, you're similar on the same course with the almost like utility of Mm -hmm. spirituality in a sense. And then James, what is your story, man? You, You militant
0: atheist, you. I'm just out here trying to figure it all out. I do know that the traditional frame uh, of Christianity as we commonly accepted it in the Western civilized church is not one that I subscribe to. Um, I also don't find myself praising traditions and praying to Mother Mary. So I find myself um, going through more text and, and maybe doing a little bit of mental masturbation here by reading more. Not quite sure how it all applies yet, but I actually, my... Uh, And I don't want to say interrupted. My spirit wasn't interrupted when I came across Savon and we started to dive into energy and spirituality, but he sure as hell did open my mind a whole lot. Mm. I didn't even think about the divine masculine and the divine feminine at all Mm. from an Eastern practice. I didn't think about that spirituality or unicity, capital U unicity or capital T truth or capital G God could be something that wasn't defined by a text that was held to a high power from a prophet that is tax exempt. Like I didn't think that that could ever be a thing, frankly. I mean, I was raised so aggressively Southern Baptist and God loved my dad and God loved my mom, but they did the best that they could with what they thought were the ideals. And I'm a hell of a better person than a lot of people that I grew up with because I was imparted with that information and that knowledge and, and that understanding, that guiding light. But I just don't subscribe to it fully. I really don't. I sit in a place where I'm like, I need more information. I need more communication. I need you to not give me a circular argumentation of Mm. faith. I need Mm. you to not tell me that this all exists because I have to believe you and believe you because someone else is talking to you in the back of your head. Who is the voice inside your head? What does that look like? Is that God? Is that God in you? Is that the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit exist? Is there a reason that we have a trinity or triad? Like, is there, is there something beneficial about doing things in threes? Is this more symbolic of other things that are going on and alignment in the universe? I don't know, but I do know that every time that I come across an individual, maybe it's a romantic partner or what have you, that tries to put me in a box of like, we believe this. And if you don't believe this, you're gone. I'm like, okay, well, there's a door. Like, I don't, I don't know where I'm going. I do know that I'm inquisitive and I'm interested in understanding. I'm interested in having perspective from other people. I'm interested in smarter people than me, more experienced, more tenured individuals and a variety of topics. Beat me over the head with something that I didn't know before. And then let me see if what you're saying makes sense. But I mean, I credit my opening of my mind from a spiritual perspective and energetic perspective, something that I would have thought energy is woo woo until I met Savon. Wow. And consistently he showed up and consistently spoke from the heart and not directed at mm-hmm. me like, Hey James, you need to change. But mm-hmm. like every time I, I pulled, he was he was completely open, non-judgmental, and willing to share every single time.
1: And man, that touches that greater point of that, you know, Savon, you, you you were it's who you are that matters, not always what you say, right? And uh That's where, you know, I know, like with my wife and I, when we got together, um, you know, we were both at probably one of the lowest points of our life, both of us. And uh, and then when I started to pull myself out of it, I was pulling myself out of it faster than she was. And I would try to tell her, right, do this, do that, do that kind of things that James, you're talking about that, you know, you dealt with. Uh, And but then what was the biggest change was when I stopped doing that and just actually really started to be that person. And, you know, and then when I would say it, it had more credence, and it had more truth behind it. And, uh, yeah, and and also too, James, I would say too, with any romantic party, partner you have anyone else in any your relationship you get into, is that, um, you know, again, like with my wife, you know, she's, she's Jewish uh, by, uh, by heritage, and not necessarily was a practicing Jew, but now, you know, she's becoming more of that. And we're having those traditions with my daughter. And so it's a funny topic when my daughter asks about God, and I'm just, you know, like, whatever, you know, either way is fine. Uh, and, you know, my wife has is developing some type of belief with that. And, but what's important though is that her and I can be together and she respects my opinions and beliefs and wants to hear it. And I want to hear her opinions and belief as well. So going with that mutual respect and open mindedness. But man, James, uh, you know what it is though, man, is that, you know, maybe you are just the eternal inquisitor. What do you think? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: I think that's an interesting title, but I, I think it's beautiful what you just said there that the two of you, maybe believing different things, can be together. I've found yes. in every
4: every romantic relationship, as I've become more open minded, it's not always reciprocal. It's not
0: always mm. offered back to me. And while I respect and even have changed my actions, gone to Passion yeah. City with my my most previous partner. That we were we were together about a year. I started going to Passion City to support her on Sundays, Um, and I actually took more notes than probably anyone in there. Because if I'm going to be here giving you my time, like let me take something from this, yeah, you know. So like let me let me hear. I have my thoughts about Louis Giglio, but let me let me write down. Let me check some of these things. Let me go through this, and and let me actually show her that I love her enough. To come here and support and take this seriously. But it was mm. interesting. And it's really to no fault of her own. In my mind, she's completely conditioned day in, day out by her family. Right. And that's something that for a lot of years I was in and it took me being like, no more. I'm done with that completely. Like, I'm not going to put myself in a, I'm not going to go back and stay for four days over Christmas and over Thanksgiving, and over this, that, and the other, because my energy is too interrupted. There's too much damage done to me, and how I view where I'm at on my path for spending yeah. time with people that that are not open-minded. So, you know, to no detriment of um, of well, actually, I think to detriment, but I'm not willing to to subscribe that my most recent romantic partner that I was committed to is necessarily a bad person. I don't think that she is. I think that no. um, she's got a lot of exploring to do as we all do. But I think that you know, through the, through the help of, of friends and, and colleagues and our Sunday group that Savon's a part of, um, I'm forced to look at things from a bunch of different perspectives no later than seven days every single time. And I don't have that kind of accountability or community anywhere else. And so Mm -hmm. that has pushed me into a place where, hey, I either become extremely open-minded and take nothing personally, you know, maybe subscribe to the Hermetic philosophies, right? And some four laws of the universe, or I just go crawl in the hole and I'd be done with all this because I can't be here and show up authentically to these these men that are expecting me to come and bring the ferocity that we're gonna bring Mm -hmm. if I'm not open-minded. And they're not open-minded to receive, and I'm not open-minded. It's got to be permeable. It's got to be, you know, a two-way street. And so I just found that, you know, it didn't matter how much I showed up to Passion City. It didn't matter how much I dove in more to the Bible outside of that to bring things to light. Because I I don't believe that the actual desire was that we grow in Christ. It was that I tick a box that her parents want me to tick. Yeah. And it's not even something she wants because if it was, she would read more she would yeah talk, you know what i mean like we would go into we would talk about sermons we would we, we would dive in but we did it it was hey my parents don't think you're christian enough hey my parents are um are of the mind that you talk about sex too much on the podcast like uh, you know what i mean like that it's judgment <laughs> and cool you're allowed to be judgmental if you want to but you're also allowed to just hit the unfollow button to just not listen Like, don't torment yourself if you tr- strongly believe these things, then just remove yourself, man. It's okay. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and you know, the thing is, too, is, right? So Christian, right? They are, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're supposed to be judgmental. So, right. <laughs> Jesus hung out with prostitutes. So, uh-huh. you know, don't judge James for hanging out with prostitutes. That's the point. <laughs> Yeah, or as you used to uh, to tease me when I
0: was at Kepner, like you're always with models, you're always with hot girls. Yeah, taking pictures all over the place.
1: Oh, I mean, I, I know that's why you were with them, right? <laughs> For sure, absolutely. I'm just saying. I, I mean, let's bring put, visuals
0: to the world now.
1: I mean, one also too, man. Just to, to be real funny, and I'll hopefully explain this in the right way. It's like, which would I rather? Well, this was one of the reasons why, like, we treat everyone with respect at Kepner, because like when I was coaching, I don't want it to be a place where no one who is an attractive female feels like they can work out there. Right. Cause I mean, beautiful people are beautiful. You know, a good looking freaking guy is it's nicer to look at than a horrible slob. You know, it doesn't mean I'm homosexual. It's just, it's <laughs> facts, man. Yeah. So, you know, so it's like, which would you rather have? It's like every single beautiful person that comes to your door, you, you hit on and make feel uncomfortable or whatever, or just be a creep to, And then they don't come. Or just, you know, put yourself in a position where you treat everyone wonderfully and, you know, you treat those people wonderful as well so they feel at home to do that. And then the end product is you have a lot of great-looking people. And that's great. And you have some people that aren't great-looking, and that's fine, too. Um, and, you know, the, their souls are beautiful. But it's like, man, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to, it's nice to be around good-looking things and people, right? But obviously it obviously doesn't mean you need to uh, uh, hurt yourself. Or uh, step away from your greatest virtues by being around it, which, you know, I know you haven't. One thing that I thought about while you're talking was the the idea of the Newtonian physics and quantum physics, right? Ooh, talk that shit, Keith. Let's go. Well, so maybe maybe that's what it is, is that uh, what you're saying, like, James, is that, you know, you're in a Newtonian physics land, right, Uh, in a sense. Um, and that's you know the world that you operate in uh, and that I operate in too, right? Cause and effect, and I do this, and I do that, and it's going to happen, and you can replicate it. Um, but then just like quantum physics, it's a whole other thing that makes no sense in comparison to that. And so maybe that's what the spiritual realm is. And maybe that's its, it's, it's whole point is it's not supposed to make sense in relation to, quote, real world, which steps outside the definition of even real, right? Um, and so maybe it's just that type of dichotomy it exists where you know it's like, dude, quantum does not work on an, on a on a large level, and uh Newtonian does not work on a quantum level, and same thing goes with religion and reason. Uh, those two things don't go together. Um, belief doesn't go together with uh reason because belief and reason are are opposites, right? You know you shouldn't have reason because you have belief, you know. So, yeah, it's just, and that's something like with the scientific method, which I, I'm in love with the scientific method, because I, I believe it's the savior of humanity, when applied correctly, uh, is that, you know, objective truth. Um, but there are also places where
4: that does not apply. Sounds like this
0: whole podcast and everything that we've talked about thus far can be parsed down into, it depends. Yes. <laughs>
1: well, hey, isn't that true Depends. though, right? Yeah. So it's like with boxing, man. It's like with the sport of boxing, just to wrap it all up in a nice package with the sport of boxing. It's like, should you jab, right? You know, James, you remember the jazz mm-hmm. most important punch of, bunch of boxing and say, well, I'm sure you know that as well. The jabs most important punch of box- uh, boxing, that straight lead hand, right? It's going to do this for you. It's going to do that for you. It's everything. Now, is there a time to not jab? Yeah. There are some times you don't need a jab and you shouldn't jab. I remember one time my wife was sparring this uh, 16-year-old kid, really strong boy, uh, who's basically a man. And every time my wife was jabbing, he was coming over with a crazy looping right hand shot and cracking her. And so I told her, hey, Lissa, like, let's just stop jabbing and just you know walk in and tear him up. And she did that. And she tore him up, beat the hell out of him. And then afterwards... I went over to my dad, because he and I were still talking at the time. I said, hey, what did you, know, you think about that? Because you know, everyone was like, wow, like, listen, just beat the hell out of this like, really in shape you know, young man. And he was like, yeah, she did good. She did good. She could have jabbed more. She could have jabbed more. I was like, man, like, didn't you see she was getting nailed every time she was jabbing? But so you know, it's just that example of that. It's like, it depends, man. It depends. It's, it's all an art. And uh, yeah. But you know what's important, though is that we all don't bullshit ourselves. Right. And we don't mistake movement for achievement on that note. We should probably wrap it up. Cause I'm, I got to actually get some
2: achievement going on. Love it. That was perfect. Thank Absolutely. you. Keith. This was yeah. epic.
0: Um, one last thing here. Can, uh, where can everybody find you? Um, what do you want them to know? And um,
1: yeah. Anything else you want to leave us with? So you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. You know, just Keith Kepner or Coach Keith Kepner on Instagram. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if business is around that someone has interest in, and like if I was going to start a business right now, I'd probably buy into a franchise. So it's a, it's a great opportunity uh, nowadays. And nowadays, it's funny. There's so many reasons not to do something. Uh, like, oh, man, inflation. I'm worried about inflation. Well, guess what? The greatest thing you can do with your money if you worry about inflation is not buying gold, I did that in 08, uh, is to invest it in something you have control over. So why not start your own business? Whether you start your own business as a one-off, that's something you designed, or you buy into a franchise, those are great opportunities. And all the things that you know we all invest in as people that have started different uh, groups and organizations and businesses is provided with you with good franchises. And that's what we offer with Kepler Boxing. So I just implore anybody that has an interest in entrepreneurship and fitness, or unboxing, or in helping people uh, to just you know take a look at our brand that you know we're committed to, and I'm committed to, and dedicated my life to scaling up. Cool,
3: that's great.
0: Yeah, as uh, as always, guys, you can find us on YouTube. Full link, snippet, video on YouTube if you want to see our mugs, uh, audio everywhere that you can find audio, and if you're uh, if you're on IG, you will see these snippets. Uh, We have about 3,000 moments that we can yank of of Keith today here. So you will see him on 8020 there. Thank y'all so much for coming out and listening and giving us your time. And we will see you next time. Peace. Peace.